Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, June 29, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. What was the Apollo movie, Houston, We Have a Problem? Well, it wasn't a movie. It was a real-life yeah. event that they made a movie about. Apollo what is 13. It? Apollo 13. Houston, We Have a Problem. Um, Wake Up Carolina audience, we have a scandal. And it doesn't involve the former president, but rather um, the current president. I don't want to say the walls are closing in. That sounds so cliche, <laughs> but, but yeah, I told Rev before the show began, um, this could be an epic unraveling in the public domain, unlike any we've ever seen. I mean, we've seen meltdowns. I mean, we've seen weather men meltdown. I mean, YouTube's full of those videos, you know, um, a reporter melting down, <laughs> uh, a business owner melting down. I mean, we've seen those, those sorts of things. We've never seen it by an American president. And yesterday when Biden was asked uh, about, you know, you, you've, you've maintained that you knew nothing about your, your son's business dealings. Is that true? Um, cause it appears, well, I mean, were you sitting by your son when he shook down the Chinese company? I mean, that's the way, and it's probably a, a provocative reporter, probably not friendly out of the mainstream media, maybe Breitbart. Um, some of those guys have credentials. Um, they've wiggled their way into the room, uh, but it was uh, it was proposed to President <laughs> Biden yesterday. Um, were you sitting beside your son um, when this text was sent, shaking down a Chinese business? And he said, um, "No." I mean, he kind of it was it was a bit. I mean, it was not just aggressive. I mean, it was a little bit unraveling. Mm -hmm. uh, I might add. And um, but we have a scandal. And, and you know, Harold Ford even said yesterday after um, Gary Shapley appeared on Brett Baer, that these are incredibly serious accusations. Are they credible? I mean, who's telling the truth? I mean, we've got IRS whistleblowers. We've got FBI whistleblowers making unbelievably serious accusations. And I think at some point in time, um, we're going to have to delve into this. And I'm talking about we. I mean, we're doing this as much as we know how. Guys, the way I prepare for We've this show. We've been talking well, I mean, about it for no, a while. But, 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 but the way I prepare for this show is to go to uh, so some liberal news sites, some conservative news sites, um, some that I consider to be more moderate than most, um, and, and and kind of interpret what I believe to be the truth. Um, I don't have uh, you know a direct connection to the White House. I don't have a source at the, uh, at the White House like the New York Times and Washington Post does, rest assured they know more than they're telling you. I mean, the New York Times is well aware of how scandalous um, this could be. Uh, they're choosing to uh, wait it out, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know what their motivations are. I mean, protecting a, a liberal president is obviously one of the um, one of the motivations. But this is going to be, uh, you know, an epic event in American politics. And then once again, I don't want to be as cliche as the walls are closing in. But it's gathering momentum. Ryan Schmelz, uh, for the first time, I told Josh this morning, well, I'm a damn, um, that, I mean, I've looked down this list for a month, uh, two weeks, two weeks, expecting and anticipating to see a reporter having been assigned to this story, and today is the first time. Um, IRS whistleblower talks about scandal in interview with Brett Baer, um, and Hunter Biden will be deposed today. Stop paying attention to Hunter Biden. I mean, the, 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 the violin is out. I mean, human, human empathy is to be considered. And I made a note to myself this morning. Um, we love our son. I mean, that's the official proclamation of the White House. 
I mean, you know, there's an expectation of empathy. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not happy that, that anybody's addicted. I'm not happy that anybody has had a troubled life. I don't find any joy in that. Um, but a, but a president's life is not entirely his own or her own. I mean, I've learned that the hard way. My, my son, my oldest son had a DUI on election day. How many of your kids had a DUI and it was above the fold of the front page of the paper? I mean, a politician's life is not entirely his own. I'm not saying it's fair, unfair. Um, I think we could be empathetic, and I am empathetic to the president. I mean, I hate the fact that his kid, President Biden's lost a child. He's had a struggle with another kid. Um, Many of you can relate to that. I can relate um, to that. So I think we can be uh, empathetic. We can have sympathy for the family. But, But once again, when you sign that dotted line to be a candidate for president, you forsake a certain degree of your privacy. You just do. I mean, I'm not saying it's the way it should be. I'm not saying I like it that way, especially when you involve your son or there are accusations. Let me say that again. There are accusations that you involve your son. I I would go down this road, and and I'll go back to my ordeal. My frustration with the media when my family had a situation was I never involved my kids. You know, my kids weren't, at the um at the state house, my kids weren't. I mean, they, they were kids, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old at the time, doing their thing. You know, whatever it is, <laughs> kids that age, and there, there ain't a worse time to run for office. When you got two boys, 17 and 18, that's probably the worst time you could possibly <laughs> run for office because they'll uh, they'll color outside yeah. of the lines at that age. Stuff tends yeah, to happen. Stuff tends to happen. They tend to be involved in that stuff uh, that tends to happen. But, but once again, I think there are, I think the majority of Americans find no joy in this. Um, I think they're frustrated by the double standard. I think they're unbelievably bothered that, uh, you know, a, a fair and free press would choose to treat the Trump family the way they did and Donald Trump as a president the way he did when there's far more scandalous accusations. Once again, um, serious accusations, are they credible? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, Gary Shapley yesterday on Brett Baer appeared to be, to me, very credible. It didn't seem to me he was motivated in advancing in a political agenda. Um, let's do this, Josh. I want to I play this a couple of times today. Really and truly, it's worth playing it in its entirety. I mean, it really is because Baer is a kind of a level-headed um, newsman at Fox News and Shapley appear to not have a lot of political uh, motivations or bias. Um, who knows? We'll find out as the um, as the world turns, uh, as we say in uh, in good old soap opera world. But um, but let's go <laughs> to right. you, you ready, Josh? Uh, if there's a bully ad, we'll deal with it the way we we normally do. But here's um here's uh, IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley. Um, it's about four minutes detailing some of the um s- some of the uh, findings in the Biden probe. Right. and they didn't support anything uh, in relation to that to that effort and it's consistent with their ongoing theme of, of, of not allowing us to pursue or ask questions about President Biden the big guy so you were clearly prevented you felt it you documented it you knew it yeah that's correct and and throughout the investigation I was documenting uh, various issues as they arose and to include the search warrants that weren't allowed to be done what happened with that between April and June of 2020, we uh, we drafted an affidavit to execute search warrant in a couple different locations. 
And the prosecutors at the time stated that probable cause had been achieved. But as we, we moved closer to the election, um, it just seemed like they kept putting it on the back burner and they eventually didn't allow us to do that search warrant, even though the legal requirements to execute that search warrant were met. Transitioning into another uh, search warrant was on a storage unit in Northern Virginia. And during the day of action on December 8th of uh, 2020, we got updated information that said that records were in that location that were, uh, you know, that would be evidence in this uh, particular investigation. And the prosecutors initially were supportive of it and an affidavit was drafted the night of December 8th, 2020 to go forward for approval. Eventually the prosecutors decided they didn't support it. So I called U.S. Attorney David Weiss with my senior executive on the phone and we said you know, we, we needed to execute this search warrant. They, uh, he responded that the prosecutors didn't want to and I asked if in 30 days if that storage unit wasn't accessed and that was the deadline for the document request that was served on that day, then we can execute the search warrant and he agreed to that. And no sooner had gotten off the phone um, with David Weiss had we learned that the prosecutors were informing defense counsel of that storage unit and the evidence that existed there. So it completely ruined our chance to, uh, to access those unfettered. What do you think was the reason for the holdup? Or the, usually you would get that right away. It was a warehouse, right? I mean, it's not a personal home. That's correct. I mean, the least intrusive uh, uh, issue is, is a legal standard in search warrants, and, and there's no way, shape, or form you, can, uh, you could ever claim that going into a un, un, uh, uh, storage unit with no individuals would be somehow uh, intrusive. And you believed what was in there was crucial to the case? Yes, we believe so, and, uh, but we'll never know now because we weren't allowed to access it. And just to be clear, the prosecutors told the defense and suddenly it wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, we never accessed that. We don't know if they ever turned over the documents that were in that location. That happened in interviews as well, um, as far as sharing information before um, they happened? So in December 8th, 2020, we finally were going over in this investigation after several uh, delays, which of course, uh, we were waiting until after the election to, to execute this at the direction of of, of the prosecutors and U.S. Attorney Weiss on this case. So we eventually did a day of action where we were approaching the subject and, and several other witnesses. We had a plan to, of what, how we were going to approach Hunter Biden that morning and ultimately we found out that the night before um, I was told the FBI headquarters contacted Secret Service and the transition team and told them of the pending action the next day. So. Ultimately, I don't know how it affected uh, uh, the, the witnesses, but there was clear opportunity for them to be tipped off before we even approached them. And of the 12 interviews that we attempted, we only received one substantive interview, and that was of Rob Walker. And that was a very important interview as the exhibit in the House Ways and Means Committee transcript uh, indicates. The answers that they gave obviously would be prepped and they would not answer like they would have had you had they not been tipped off? As possible, in our case, they just refused to be interviewed. And was there any explanation ever given for any of them? No, I mean, we, we were, as investigators, we were finally over and we were finally moving forward and we thought that, that, that we, were, we were gonna open up a whole new line of, uh, of things that we can do in the investigation after going over. 
So uh, it, it may have lost a little bit of, uh, of attention because of that. So there's some of the, um, I mean, that's about four minutes. I'm, I'm serious. We probably, I mean, if I could find it in its entirety on Twitter or, or, or YouTube or somewhere, I think it's worth those who have not heard nor seen it to, um, I mean, he walks through chronologically and um, kind of kind of the, uh, the backstory of the investigation. And here's the question I'll pose to our listeners. And this is the only question that any of us need to consider. Um, we talked about empathy. We talked about, you know, um, sympathetic figures and, uh, you know, um, a love of a son, the father's love of his, of his kid. I mean, all that matters. But at the end of the day, the only central question that we need to have answered, what did Joe Biden know? What did Joe Biden receive? I mean, if you believe that these government agencies are going to stonewall an IRS investigation for the kid of a president, then you're a little more gullible than, and naive than I am. I mean, they're not going to do that. I mean, that, that they would go to the White House, they would meet with the president and say, look, your, your kid's made some stupid decisions. He's the kid of a president. It probably isn't fair that he's going to get treated publicly differently than other kids who have made mistakes. He had a kid. He's a 50-some-odd-year-old man now. But, I mean, you know, we, we call the president's kid. Um, and I'm kind of saying that as the president says, I love my son. Um, probably doesn't call him a kid, his son. So, so, so someone from the government goes to the Oval Office and says, Mr. President, your, your son has made some big mistakes. It, it's pretty obvious he has gained financially in transacting off the family name. Um, we're going to have to arrest him. I mean, there's some serious charges here. There's falsifying information on uh, obtaining a firearm. There, there's some things here that are that are full on. I mean, they're, they're serious. They're felonies, and we're going to have to charge accordingly. A government agency, the government's not going to risk its reputation and, and worthiness on that. They just aren't. They're going to engage the president, um, but basically brief him on what they expect to happen and how unfortunate all of this is and how apologetic they are that they're having to do this, but they're having to do it anyway. But that's not what's happening here, guys. There's an apparent and alleged that there's an alleged and apparent cover up and a stonewall and, and creating impediment after impediment to allow a thorough investigation to go where the facts lead. But that's, in essence, what this investigator is saying. You know, I want to go where the facts lead. They lead us to a storage room or a storage uh, facility. They lead us to a home in, uh, was it, Roboth Beach, uh, Delaware. We we were not allowed to go there. And remember last week we talked about, um, I mean, I had it written down here, affidavits, document requests, search warrants, um, conduct about 15 to 20 interviews. I mean, to me, he's chronicling. So some of what he was not allowed to do. And, I mean, it's not words on a paper anymore. It's a dude sitting in front of a camera making some real serious allegations about what the current president, I mean, the former president's got his issues. I mean, they'll, they'll address that. He's been arraigned. He's been indicted. He'll have a trial. Uh, we'll see how that works itself out. Um, mishandling classified information, obstructing justice, uh, the Espionage Act. But, but I don't think anybody's accusing. I mean, th- th- there's some random conversations out there about what Ivanka and Jared got for being in the White House. I mean, there's legitimate businesses associated with those two people. We, we've got a family in the White House who have never run a legitimate business in their life and be, have become unbelievably wealthy and have lived um, lavish lifestyles. How? 
That's been the fundamental question since day one. How have the Bidens gotten rich? And I think Gary Shapley was on the trail. And I think the FBI and IRS were on the trail at making pretty significant findings in how the Bidens had gotten rich. And somebody in the government said, no further. Stop right there. You don't ask these questions. You, You don't get those documents. You don't get that interview, the search warrant. And he talked about how it had been, you know, approved by whatever process mm-hmm. you go through to obtain a, a search warrant. And somebody at the last minute said, um, and, and the fundamental question here, the, the legal question, and I mean, I guess we'll find the answer to this. U.S. Attorney David Weiss sent a letter either to Oversight of Ways and Means, might have been Ways and Means, saying he was given full authority to investigate. Three whistleblowers said that Weiss more than one time told them I can't do anything. I mean, my hands are tied here. This is kind of above my pay grade, as you and I would speak. So Weiss is contra. Well, excuse me. Either Weiss is telling the truth or the whistleblowers are. Because the whistleblowers, not just Shapley, this whistleblower and two more are saying on multiple occasions, when when they went to Weiss asking for permission to do X, Y, or Z, they were told, uh, it's above my, I mean, it's above my head. I mean, this isn't something I'm in control of anymore. Um, DOJ is making certain provisions and parameters of which we can conduct our investigation. Um, I'll get back with you. Now, now Weiss, once again, sent a letter to Ways and Means um, corroborating what U.S. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has said that Weiss had full discretion. I mean, he had carte blanche. He could do whatever he chose to do. So either Weiss is not being honest, Garland's not being honest, or the three whistleblowers are are dishonest. Once again, these are serious allegations. Are they credible? They appear to be, but let's investigate and find out. I mean, let's have a thorough, unfettered investigation into Joe Biden's business dealings. What did he know? What didn't he know? Um, We know Hunter Biden. I mean, we've got a pretty good idea of what he did. How involved was Joe Biden? Take a break. Back in a few. I don't know that I can do as good a job of explaining this. And this is the morning that that I think we begin to sense, or I do. I mean, I can't speak for you. I mean, I do this for a living. So, So my radar is always on. My rabbit ears are always up. Something's different this morning about this alleged scandal than yesterday. I mean, the media's pushed it away. They've tried their best to run interference. We've heard violin music. We've heard, we talked about human empathy and, you know, the president loves his son. Something interesting happened to me yesterday. Um, uh, the black lesbian was asked about this. I mean, obviously she does a daily, you know, um, briefing and she was asked about um, the involvement of the president. I mean, obviously that would have been a question because Shapley's gone public. I mean, he's not some anonymous source anymore. He's not a confidential human source. I mean, here's a real dude with a suit and a beard, you know, saying, here's what I believe happened, or, or here's what I know happened, and, you know, I'll let you decide why you think that happened or not. But I, I made a note this morning that the black lesbian said yesterday, and this may be just me, I mean, I, I'm paranoid anyway, she said that Joe Biden has never been in business with Hunter Biden. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why that matters to me. You think they're choosing those words Well, historically, it's been or... he knew nothing about the business. Right. And yesterday, in one of her answers, she said, I repeat that the president has never been in business with Hunter Biden. 
that, that may be just her making a mistake. I mean, that may be just, you know, her in the heat of the moment not answering the question as she historically has. I don't know, but, but I've been in politics, and very few things happen accidentally. That There's normally a, a game plan, a well-thought-out, well-schemed game plan, and something tells me that the president is going to be forced to admit that he knew about Hunter's uh, business escapades, but he was not in business. And I don't know if that's the precursor, you know, to, to, to where we're headed now. But but she said yesterday, you know, as I said a hundred times, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but, but anyway, as I've said over and over and over again, the president was not in business with his son. Mm, okay. I thought he didn't know anything yeah. about, little, the, uh, about the kid. And once again, it may just have been a, a flippant mistake. I don't think it was. I mean, you know, once again, I just don't think people at that level make many faux pas. I mean, they just don't. They don't slip and say things unintentionally. Nearly everything you say is well thought out, well constructed, well designed, and intentional. Let's go back to Brett Baer. I mean, once again, I don't know that I can explain this anywhere near as well as Baer gets the guy who's making uh, these whistleblower accusations, Gary Shapley. Let's go there, um, Josh. Is Internal Revenue Service Supervisory Agent Gary Shapley. He is one of the whistleblowers who's given information to Congress about the probe into the business dealings of the president's son. Gary, thanks for being here. Thank you, Brett, for having me. Let's just start at the beginning. Um, why are you doing this? Because every taxpayer deserves to be treated fairly. And, you know, it was my oath of office to... to to make sure that that happens. And, uh, um, you know, we wouldn't meet our mission as an agency with IRS criminal investigation, and we'd really lose the trust of, of, of the people of the United States if we didn't ensure that everyone was treated fairly. So for the people who say, oh, this is, you know, some planted Republican who's trying to affect, you know, the upcoming election or has some motivation, what do you say to them? It's just simply the facts are the facts. and. I've, in my past, I've, uh, I've voted for, for both D's and R's, and, you know, politics are irrelevant when, I, when I'm conducting my job. And what is your job? So I supervise a group of 12 agents right now, and uh, for everything that they do, from case development, case initiation, all the way through prosecution recommendation and enforcement actions, things like that. And I've been doing that um, since 2018. I've been an agent since, uh, for 14 years now. The second whistleblower is actually a, a case agent, not named, but you know who that is. Yes, I do. And you, this is done separately. Um, you're, you're, two, you're coming forward separately. Yeah. I was in the October 7th meeting, and that ended up being my red line. And uh, that's when I decided to come forward. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to put words in, into the other whistleblower's mouth, but, you know, his red line was at a different time, and he did so when he thought... Uh, he needed to. And he was the case agent specifically? That's correct. He developed this case and worked it since 2018. And you, in a supervisory role, you uh, were in this October 7th meeting. Let's get there, because that's your red line moment. This is a moment in which your, the Delaware U.S. Attorney, David Weiss, according to you, had made this disclosure on October 7th, 2022, meeting with top IRS and FBI officials, saying what? So I was there, and I witnessed this personally. And... He started with, he's not the deciding person on whether or not charges are filed or not. Not the deciding person on whether charges are filed with Hunter Biden? That's correct. Who was? So, 
ultimately this, if you follow the path of where the venue leads you, they went to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office in March of 2022, and they presented this case to them. Three things you do. Uh, we got a bully ad here. Stick with me, Josh. Hold on one second. Let me, uh, yeah, three, two, one. Okay, let's go back. Uh, it's the same time of that, uh, same time as that was occurring. They requested discovery from the agents, which is a typical step when they're getting ready to charge. Now, I wasn't in those meetings. I asked to be in those meetings, as did the case agent, so we didn't help present to them. But after that occurred, he was no longer looking to charge in that, in that district. So that's earth-shattering news. Um, it's a Biden-appointed D.C. U.S. attorney, Matthew Graves, would not allow him to charge in his district. So I didn't learn that fact until October 7th of 2022, so looking back to March of 2022. And that's when David Weiss, in October 7th, 2022, said that the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office had will not allow us to charge there. And then he added that he would request special he requested special counsel authority and was denied. In that meeting, I even had him repeat that because I knew how important that fact was and I wanted to make sure I understood it. You were there and you remember it crystal clear in your mind. Not only do I remember it crystal, crystal clear, but I documented it. The email that's an exhibit in the House Ways Means Committee testimony was when I returned home that evening, I documented it in, a, in an email. And, it, and it's an exhibit. You can look right on there. And I sent that email to two senior executives, one of which was at that meeting. And I said, is this accurate reflection of what occurred during the meeting? And the response was, you covered it all. So there are other things in that uh, uh, email to include that he needed to go to California and he had gone to California to request a charge there. And then he even opines that if they declined to allow charges, that he would have to request special counsel authority from the deputy attorney general or attorney general. Speaking of the attorney general, uh, he was asked specifically about this. Mr. Weiss had, in fact, more authority than a special counsel would have. He has complete, he, has, he had and has complete authority, as I said, to bring a case anywhere he wants in his discretion. But you're saying, this, he's saying that wasn't the case. Look. You know, the, I presented the facts to the House Ways and Means Committee, and uh, they're corroborated, and another whistleblower says the same thing. So, um, you know, there is a disparity there, but um, I was there, I remember it, and, and I can vouch for uh, exactly what's written there today is what happened. So, um, House Ways and Means Committee, uh, this is Congressman Jason Smith. This was a campaign of delay, divulge, and deny. Whistleblowers say reoccurring unjustified delays pervaded the investigation, including an authenticating a WhatsApp message in which Hunter Biden demands payment from Chinese officials, noting that his father is in the room. All true? Yes. I mean, that's your feeling, what he's describing there. Yes, it is. Yes. This WhatsApp message, I mean, it obviously raised the most eyebrows in Washington because it, it seems to go directly to this. Do you know if there was an effort to authenticate that or uh, to make sure that that had been followed? Sure, and that was the reason why that was included in my testimony was because when we received the, the attorney-client filter reviewed 
copy of, of information from the search warrant to Apple, which produced that document, we went back to the uh, prosecutors and we requested to take various investigative steps. And they were not supported. Uh, and, that, and when they weren't supported, they said, well, maybe he wasn't co-located with him. So, well, we, we can take investigative steps to, uh, to, to see that. if that happened. Right. And they didn't support anything uh, in relation to that, to that effort. And it's consistent with their ongoing theme of, of, of not allowing us to pursue or ask questions about President Biden, the big guy. So you were clearly prevented. You felt it. You documented it. You knew it. Yeah, that's correct. And, and throughout the investigation, I was documenting uh, various issues as they arose and to include the search warrants that weren't allowed to be done. What happened with that? Between April and June of 2020, we, uh, we drafted an affidavit to execute search warrant in a couple different locations. And the prosecutors at the time stated that probable cause had been achieved. But as we, we moved closer to the election, um, it just seemed like they kept putting it on the back burner and they eventually didn't allow us to do that search warrant, even though the legal requirements to execute that search warrant were met. Transitioning into another uh, search warrant was on a storage unit in Northern Virginia. And during the day of action... Okay, th this, is, I mean, this is the part we played earlier um, this morning. It's an interesting... And, and here's what he said. And, and we'll go back and uh, there's some about six or eight minutes later in the interview with Brett Bayer, he reiterates, we got this information from Apple. I mean, as part of our investigation, we, we um, I guess, subpoenaed certain information from Apple. Apple provided the information that that was indeed Hunter Biden's phone. That was a WhatsApp message. We wanted to find out whether or not the president was with his son. And they were denied the right to pursue that information. I, mean, I would imagine Apple would provide that information, but some of the um, some of the senior management of the IRS or or in judiciary were not allowing um, that to take place. That's kind of earth shattering, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And I keep going back to my and this is a gut instinct I have. There is no way that there's just you're not going to convince me in a million years that that many people put that much at stake and risk in the name of protecting the son of a president. I just, for the life, there is no way I'll ever buy that. Now, now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I've been wrong before sitting behind this microphone. This is about Joe Biden. I mean, this is about the big guy. This is about making sure the investigation is not thorough enough to prove that Joe Biden is on the take. Uh, remember political prostitution, political thuggery. I mean, this is a part of political thuggery. And, and I don't know if it's winking and nodding. I don't know if it's um, meeting in a phone booth somewhere or a coffee shop or a bar. I don't have any idea. I mean, everything I say there is complete and total accusation and speculation. I don't know. But, but you're going to have a hard time convincing me that this is about Hunter Biden. This is not about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is a troubled man. The president is, is, is a loving father. Americans have empathy for that sort of situation but a president gives up a certain portion of his private life when he is the president. And it seems to me that there were a lot of people doing a lot of special activities in making sure certain things about this president were not find that found out. Now, now, these are serious accusations. I would argue the most serious accusations levied against an American president since when? I mean, I don't know. 
I mean, it's far more serious than Watergate. I mean, this is somebody being bribed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is somebody on the take. This is a family business masquerading as public service. I mean, this is shaking down foreign governments to receive funding for access to mining your federal government. I mean, is there a more sensational and egregious charge in the history of our country that has ever been levied against a president and, and the, the embarrassment of the media to be forced to finally pay attention to one of the most sensational charges? Now, now once again, it is an accusation. As Harold Ford said, Democrat Congress member, former uh, Democrat member of Congress, these are unbelievably serious accusations. Are they credible? I mean, I'll let you decide. Does Gary Shapley appear to sound credible in, in what he says happened? Somebody's lying. I mean, we know that. We, we don't know anything else. We, we speculate. We're guesstimating. But we know that either Merrick Garland, David Weiss, or these whistleblowers are lying in a, in a pretty important part of American politics. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth. Welcome back to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, 7.05-ish. means Reggie Armstrong. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good. Can't believe the end of June is around the corner. Yeah. Well, it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Half, halfway through the year. Yeah, halfway Golly. through the year, and, um, and the second half is yet to come. You know, the, the end of the year we make... I don't know, end of year plans. At the beginning mm-hmm. of the year, we make New Year's resolutions. Sometimes in the mid-year, we start thinking about, wow, half the year's gone, but half lies ahead. If someone is thinking about beginning a, a relationship with a financial planner, so mm-hmm. some, some, some person to give them advice as to what to do here, what to do there. I mean, a, a lot of young people don't believe they need one because they don't have a lot of disposable income. Mm-hmm. But, but is it true, Reggie, that the sooner you start that relationship, the more fruitful the relationship potentially becomes. Uh, I, absolutely. And again, I know that sounds a little self-serving. And, and, and we're, we, we have no problem telling somebody, hey, you're on track. You just need to check in every now and again. You've got all your ducks in order. But, you know, you know last week we talked about insurance. Hey, do, if you don't hire that financial professional, do you want to wait and find out <laughs> too late that you should have hired somebody to get the insurance side of the equation or the retirement planning? What do you, you know? The, the best thing young people have, Ken, is, is time on their side, and there's some big, big decisions they can make early on. Um, and and not everybody's a do-it-yourselfer, and even do-it-yourselfers oftentimes don't know where all the gaps are. So, well, how do they start? Sure. What steps do they follow? Sure. This is really, uh, you know, last week I talked about back in the envelope. This is sort of similar to that four, kind of four things to look for when you interview with a financial professional. Okay. Uh, ideally, that first session you have with a financial professional is a discovery type session, meaning it's kind of like a first date. You're getting to know them. They're getting to know you. That's the ideal scenario. And, you know, one of the things you're going to look for is, is competence. Now, that's kind of hard to judge. Sometimes... Uh, someone will have designations. I'm a certified private wealth advisor, CPWA. Uh, Matt and my firm, as an example, I've, I've got two CFPs on staff, two certified financial planners. That at least lets you know we're serious about education, serious about staying on the cutting edge of the planning, uh, you know, uh, of our of our you know discipline of our uh, profession here. It doesn't guarantee anything. Like in our firm, you know, we have MBA on staff. We've got all these designations. 
That doesn't mean we're competent, but it probably ups the odds. And so therefore, you know, hey, what, what, you know, what's your background? You know, oh, you know, you, you, you know, like I was in the military. You know, I, I, I'm thankful that my first clients hired me because I'm not so sure I would have classified myself as competent those first six months or so, even though I had studied real hard. Um, but it is, it's important. So competence is the first one, you know, and it, it is hard to judge, okay? The second one is, and then this is also hard to judge, but people need to keep it in the back of their mind is, you know, are they ethical? And again, how do you know, right? So how do you know that person's ethical? And I, I would say the best thing, judge, you're going to have on that is reputation. It's, you know, what's the reputation, you know? And, and oftentimes we'll, we'll learn about that reputation by, talking to someone who's already using them. You know, we'll say, hey, you know, John uses, you know, Lee in, 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 at Armstrong Wells' office, and I've known Lee for 25 years, and he's been doing this for t over 20 years, and I've been very happy with him. You know, that kind of, that lets gives you a clue. Okay, the reputation's there, you, you know. But listen to the language the person uses, and we're going to get to that at the very last step. But ethics is important. Now, it's easy to get hoodooed on ethics. I mean, Bernie Madoff, you know, he hoodooed the people at his synagogue. I mean, you know, and, and affinity fraud is one of the top scams year after year on the FBI's scam list. So, you know, you, just because he or she goes to church with you doesn't mean they're, 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 they're an ethical individual. Hopefully they are and probably are. There's only a handful of bad apples, but, you know, you just don't want to be putting your money with that person, right? Uh, the third thing is, and this is a— my opinion here is you want them to be comprehensive. If they're very narrow, if all they do is sell insurance or sell annuities or, 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 or have their favorite stock list, yeah, they might be able to help you with one part. If, you're all, if all you're looking for is a good bond manager, well, that's, that, that's okay. But if you're looking for someone to help guide you through the jungles of this, of this financial world and through your life, you want someone comprehensive who, can, who, who has a, not only is licensed in the broad range of investments, but also is well-versed, so they can say, no, no, this is good, but here are three other options to consider, and here's why I recommend this one first and that one second. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And then the last one is a, little, is a lot more, even more subjective than the first three. Again, we talked about competence. We talked about ethics and reputation. We talked about being comprehensive. Here's the thing. Watch the first part of that conversation. Pay very close attention to how that person, that financial advisor, is interacting with you. Is he or she asking you about yourself, your goals, your concerns, your family, your your questions, or are they leading with how good they are and how their list of top stocks has done so well, or how you know? Let me show you. I, I mean, I had a lady come an interview with us many many years ago, and she was comparing us to somebody else, and she told me she said, "Yeah, first thing this guy did is about five minutes later, he pulled out and said." This is this mix of funds is what I would recommend for you. I mean, five minutes. How do you know? I mean, really, you know, and, you know, so she didn't hire that individual. But, you know, so the, here's the thing. Do they just like when you're in a relationship, are, are you asking questions about your date or are you telling them all about yourself? Right. And and you, you got to do both. But ideally, that financial professional is asking about you first, listening and and usually not every time but usually not even making recommendations because they haven't gone through all your data and thought things through here's one of my favorite quotes i don't even know who said it so i can't give you know proper attribution but it's mine now uh <laughs> it's 
you know, prescription before diagnosis is malpractice in, in, in the medical profession and in the financial profession. You, you can't prescribe until you know what's, what's ticking. And once you know what's ticking, then so if that person is starting to prescribe things and they've known you for about 20 minutes, um, and with the rare exception, that that's a big red flag that that might not be the right individual. Does that help a little bit? That helps a lot. So if someone wants to decide whether or not you and your team mm-hmm. are the right individual slash individuals, how do they begin that? Sure. Uh, check us out at armstrongwealth.com and uh, 843-292-9997. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Kim. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Devon Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Okay, the, uh, kind of an unusual first hour and 15 minutes of Wake Up Carolina. Uh, you probably like it. Less of me, more <laughs> of serious people like Brett Baer and Gary Shapley and, and Reggie Armstrong. And now you're back to the moron who, for whatever reason, uh, ends up with a radio show. I just felt that Bear. I mean, Bear's a news dude, right? I mean, Bear's not an opinion monster. I mean, I would imagine he's got a lot of opinions. But he checks his opinions by and large at the door. I've always felt he, he's been fair and he's been a real journalist. He's probably the only journalist at Fox News, to be honest with you. Um, but but he's he's kind of um he's a sane voice in a world of insanity. And I'm talking about the media in general are always up to something. And and I've never suspected Bear to be up to something. I mean, I'm sure he's got a, a political bias about him. But, but in my opinion, if the world had more Brett Bears, politics would be a better place because there would be some equal accountability on either side. Republicans screw up, and you kind of answer to the media. Democrats screw up, you answer uh, to the media. Their job to investigate and, you know, thoroughly investigate, vet what you're saying. Is it accurate or not? Josh came in a second ago when we're talking about, you know, the, um, the situation the president finds himself in, and I have been very careful to say, I know this to be true. I, I will say this, the president and his family are wealthy. And people have a lot of questions about how the president and his family got wealthy. And there seems to be some incriminating evidence that is headed our way to uh, lead us to believe there have been things done uh, that should not have been done. But once again, serious accusations are they credible? How credible are uh, the charges made by the whistleblower, the IRS, the FBI? Because I said yesterday, I think the podcast, that uh, nah, was yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. We, uh, we, we kind of used the mute. The, the, well, I mean, the That's cast right. of characters. I mean, you got a lot of incriminating information or a lot of accusations that, that are a bit incriminating. You've got um, an IRS whistleblower, an FBI whistleblower. You got bank records. You got LLCs. You got foreign nationals. We may or may not have audio recordings. You got a supervisory agent now that is not an anonymous source. He's not a confidential human source. You got affidavits, document requests. You got a lot of uh, reality there now. And you got a guy now who's saying we wanted to investigate to the nth degree where the money came from and where the money went. 
and we never were able to do our job. I mean, we were prohibited from going down the road of is Joe Biden involved in this or not. Now, now that's not, I mean, that, I think we know that to be true. Now, now, once again, was David Weiss given full authority? I don't know. He says he was. The three whistleblower says he was not. So, so who's telling the truth there? Um, why would Weiss, why would U.S. Attorney Weiss lie? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I think we got to be real careful about, you know, I know this to be true. No, I suspect some of these things to be true. And my suspicion is based on the Biden's got wealthy and nobody knows how. And now there seems to be some evidence leading us down the road of how the Biden's got wealthy. And it's going to be very unsavory to the president and the media wants this guy instead of the other guy. So, so there's kind of the framing, the framework of where we are. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Well, you know, kid, those whistleblowers are risking a lot. You know, the other guys are just trying to save their bucks. But uh, here's the thing that I keep wondering about. Okay, for politicians and uh, the federal government and the Justice Department more, they have more integrity and morals and character back near Dixon's time, I doubt it. But nobody risks their entire, you know, you had a few people that had no choice. That were tied up in the Watergate cover-up, which, when you look at compared to today's stuff, it doesn't even warrant a back-page story. But the point I'm making is Nixon was not powerful enough to get people and the media to cover up for him. None of these other people have been that powerful. I mean, and I don't believe Joe Biden is that powerful. The, you, know, you know what I'm saying? I said, they, they, evidently, Joe Biden, the dumbest man that's ever been president, Joe Biden is more powerful, and he's slicker and able to do more to Tricky Dick Nixon. Joe Biden is more powerful, and he's slick enough and everything else to outwit Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, everybody that even said, hey, to Donald Trump serving time right now. And all the Nixon's guys saw, you know, they had about five or six of those guys serve time. And, you know, and everybody wants us to believe that Joe Biden, who has made millions and millions of dollars, through payoffs, is so smart and so intelligent that none of his people have even been that going on, you know, to have nothing happen to him. There's got to be a hell of a lot more than that. Or either Joe Biden has played us off for fools, and he's a dag on uh, 250 IQ, and he's going to ride acting like a duck. Because how is Joe? I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Sure, I do. I mean, damn, it don't make no sense to it. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. What Breeze is arguing is a guy that doesn't appear to be on top of everything um, is either playing games with us. It's a little bit like, you, you know, minding your cat. We joke around. Rev and I joke around with our cats. We're not playing with our cat. Our cat's playing with us. That's right. Well, I mean, do you believe Joe Biden is that? I mean, do you believe he's some political savant that, that is so far ahead of us and he leads us down this trail? And No. I mean, I just think there is a complicit machine that is running interference for everything Joe Biden has ever done. There are so many people in Washington that his story, I mean, you got to believe this. I mean, Rev was talking about if he, you know, if he'd stopped, if he hadn't run for president, he'd probably been okay. But but you know there are people in Washington over the years that have said, where'd Joe get the money to do that? Or where did Joe get the money to do that? Or how did Joe end up doing this? Did Joe Biden really buy a house formerly owned by the DuPonts? As a member of the Senate, what does Joe Biden do? I mean, what business is he from? What family? Uh, what wealthy family is he? Is he an heir 
to the estate. None. I mean, so, so that's always been my suspicion. But that's what I've always been. Now, I'm not bothered by it when he was a senator because I expect some of that to happen. I mean, I expect pay to play and selling access and peddling influence. Uh, that's where I will agree with Jeff. I mean, this isn't the first time it's ever happened. I think Joe Biden is one of the extreme examples of this ever happening. And I think if we if we're allowed to follow the fact pattern where the fact pattern takes us, we'll find out that Joe Biden's a crook, 100% crook. And and I think Breeze's point, you know, even the ones that hate Trump said it's hard to it's like nailing Jello to a light pole. You know how many times it's like you're not nah, he's, he's the squishiest guy. There's they're not gonna get him. I mean, they, you know, Thick Pen would always say, you know, they they won't get him. He's too slick. He's too um. He, that's too much in his element. He's too familiar with how that how that world works. Well, I mean, what we're led to believe is Biden is a, a political savant. You know, he's just so much more advanced and 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 deep. And uh, you know, we're playing checkers, and he's not playing three D or four D chess. He's playing nine D chess. I mean, he's moving uh, pieces with his mind. Doesn't even have to have to touch him. No, I believe the guy's a crook. I think the family's corrupt. I think they've done anything it takes to make a buck. And I think people in Washington have always kind of sort of known that, but he was not the president. And now he's the president because he ran against Trump and Trump was a threat to the machine and, and, you know, the dynasty that the, the neocons had built and they were going to do whatever they could to protect him until you can't protect him anymore or until he's become disposable. Is it time for Joe Biden to go? I, you know, Susan Rice left. Robert believes that was a telltale sign of mm-hmm. we're about to get rid of this guy. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. Not that we're counting down the days, but today and tomorrow are the last two shows we do in the first half of this year. Rev is going on a cruise. Mm-hmm. I'm going to my other job because I'm the hardest working man in show business. Right, Rev? Yeah, that's right. Good deal. Just ask you. So yeah. um, so we will not be live and in living color next week. We'll be back um, July 10th. So the we, we played that interview with Brett Baer and the IRS whistleblower. And I've said this before, and I'll continue to believe it, that Brett Baer, I think, is an honest broker. He is a, a journalist, you know, probably one of the few out there on any of the, quote, news networks, right? So when, when he does something like that, I mean, it... it I take now, it pretty seriously. Now, now, some would say guilty by association. You know, how nah. can Bear be fair when he works at Fox and Fox is conservative leaning and biased toward uh, the conservative? I think calls. he calls it pretty much well, down I the think middle. he is a journalist. I mean, I think he does the best he can to try and get a straight answer from whomever um, he's interviewing. My problem with this story, and I mean this sincerely, I, I give my opinion. But my opinion is based on my interpretation of what the facts are or what I believe the facts to be. And I read the New York Times and I read the Wall Street Journal and I read the Washington Post every day. I read The Hill and Politico. I read Breitbart. I read Huffington Post. I mean, I try to get a fair accounting. It amazes me that accusations are being made of a sitting president and the media is not covering it. I mean, that, that's astounding to me. Well, once again, these are allegations. That these are very serious allegations. How credible are they? I don't know. I don't have any idea how credible the IRS whistleblower or the FBI whistleblower or, or the bank records that Comer says he has in the oversight or some of the comments that Jason Smith has made at Ways and Means. But I can't find any reporting on it. 
I mean, I think the New York Times yesterday or the day before may have had an article about it. Um, it's just it's, it's confounding to me how there is so little media interest in, in what I perceive to be a huge story if any of these accusations are credible. Uh, it, it's just, I mean, it, once again, I, I mean, I, I'm not a media source. I go to the media sources and read what they have to say, and then we kind of kick that can around for four hours every morning. Obviously, there's a bias, and, and, you know, the majority of us are conservatives, and we like things that advantage conservatives to the disadvantage of liberals, but, but the media's just choosing to, I, I don't know, maybe hope this story goes away. I, I, I don't have any idea. Um, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today and having a good week. I am doing well. So, so John, what am I to make of that? I mean, I, well, once again, you heard me rant for a second or two or three. Um, I, I just I can't find any coverage of some of these serious accusations that oversight, ways and means, IRS whistleblower, FBI whistleblower are making regarding the current sitting president. Well, I agree with everything that you said, uh, and I think that there are some news organizations that are starting to cover this story. You mentioned the New York Times finally uh, at least doing one article on this. CBS has also done some stories on this. I think this is going to garner a lot of attention when this particular whistleblower comes before Congress and testifies under oath. And I think it would be a blockbuster hearing. If Republicans in organizing that committee not only have on the panel uh, that whistleblower, but also the U.S. attorney from Delaware uh, responding to the claims of the whistleblower, that to me would force all of the news organizations that you think are not covering the story to cover this story because it would be a blockbuster hearing. Well said and appreciate those comments. Um, So the current president may or may not have problems. The former president and current frontrunner, in the Republican Party is addressing some legal matters, and we um we had some audio tapes revealed this week. Uh, what's your take of that? Well, the audio tapes, I'm sure you've, you've spoken about this. Maybe you've played them. They don't put Donald Trump in a good light, and we've heard various defenses that he's put forward over the course of this week uh, in the aftermath of those tapes. Uh, being played first on CNN and then on other news outlets. Uh, Look, any lawyer will tell you, uh, if you have a criminal case before you, do not comment on your case publicly. And Donald Trump is violating that basic uh, premise. Uh, He's doing it regularly. And anything that he says in terms of an interview or out on the campaign trail about this 37-count criminal indictment against him can be used by prosecutors against him and i think likely will be used by prosecutors against him you know all these defenses can only actually be raised by his defense uh in the course of the trial if donald trump takes the stand and i think that's very unlikely and i think that's what is so problematic for him is that if he does have these various defenses that he's throwing out there uh he can't himself make those defenses under oath because i think it's very unlikely that he's going to testify under oath when that trial gets underway. John, speaking of Trump, one of the lasting legacies of the Trump administration, whether you love him, hate him, uh, is the court. I mean, he has a, I guess, a generational influence on the U.S. Supreme Court. Many conservatives felt that when Trump got the chance to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 
uh, you know, the fix is in. Everything conservative America ever aspired for, wished, or wanted was going to be decided by the Supreme Court in favorable fashion. And it's been a mixed bag. Is that a fair analysis? It is a mixed bag. It's a fair analysis. On certain issues, though, uh, you do have that conservative six to three majority. And that is pretty apparent. Uh, on other cases, you get uh, a surprise, so to speak. And we saw that uh, in the course of this past week with a voting rights case involving the state of Alabama, where you had the chief justice and Brett Kavanaugh joining with the three liberals on the court, uh, giving uh, those challenging that congressional uh, pattern that you saw in Alabama uh, a victory, a five to four victory. Uh, so it really depends upon the case. It really depends upon the issue. Uh, on on most issues, I do think you do see that conservative majority uh, win the day. I think you'll see that likely with two remaining issues that have yet uh, to come out in terms of opinions from the Supreme Court. One, affirmative action in higher education, uh, the challenges to the admissions programs factoring in, in race at the University of North Carolina and also at Harvard University. And the other case, that Biden administration student loan forgiveness plan. I think you're going to see the conservatives uh, also flexing their muscles in both of those particular cases. But, John, is it fair? I mean, I'm not a lawyer. You are. Is it fair to suggest that the courts are not, the Supreme Court in particular, are not trying to reflect the political division in America today? Um, it, it just seems to me that Roberts, I mean, he can't say this, and I certainly understand and respect the fact that he can't say it, but, but Roberts doesn't want his court to appear to be partisan, but, but rather, and I'm not saying throw one side a bone and then throw the, other. I'm not, I'm not arguing or insinuating that, but it does seem to me that he is guarded about the court reflecting how deeply divided our politics are. I think that's a good read. So John Roberts is the chief justice and he uh, takes that position very seriously, as he should. Uh, and he also recognizes uh, the fact that if you look at poll after poll, Americans' views of the Supreme Court have changed, and not for the better. Uh, you know, you have a, a vast majority of Americans viewing the Supreme Court as a political body. He wants to change that. He wants to improve the image of the court. Uh, I'm not saying that weighs in uh, in terms of every decision that he's making, but on those particular issues uh, that, you know, the Supreme Court is viewed through with this political prism, uh, he's troubled by that. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw him on last year's uh, abortion case, uh, the Dobbs decision of uh, being on the side of the liberal bloc, uh, because he didn't want the Supreme Court to take a position so at odds with precedent, Roe versus Wade, and a further damaging in his view of the way the Supreme Court is viewed by most Americans. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time. Have a great day, and we will um, we'll not talk next week because we're on vacation, but we'll catch up with you week after. I'm on vacation, too. Enjoy your vacation, Ken. You are the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> you are. I heard that. And we'll talk to you in, uh, in, a week, in two weeks' time. I look forward to it. Good deal. Happy 4th, John. You, too. Bye-bye. Uh, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker, uh, believing that the media that he's a part of will be forced uh, once the once the whistleblower appears before a congressional committee or subcommittee uh, under oath. And, and I guess that's what John is arguing that, um, you know, uh, 
promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God, uh, under fear of perjury or threat of perjury is kind of another animal. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd like to think I'm pretty decent at reading people. Um, you know, the BS meter and nothing about Shapley concerns me. I mean, it just doesn't, he doesn't appear to be, I think Josh said it best. He's kind of the guy next door. I mean, he ends up in the middle of an investigation. Um, he wants to find the word. I mean, he's looking for a fact pattern, right? I mean, you know, what, what did Hunter Biden do and what didn't he do? And it begins to lead uh, towards some maybe presidential impropriety. And once he kind of opens that door, cracks that door, somebody slams it shut and says, no, 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 stop there. What do you mean stop there? You're, you're, no, we're, we're not going down that road. I mean, we're just not going uh, down that road. And, and, and all I can say is this. It's, it's a little bit like if you've been married six times, you, you didn't you didn't marry, you know, five women who don't know how to be married. I mean, there comes a point in time you got to look in the mirror and say, wow, this might be me. So, so, so when you've got an IRS whistleblower, you've got an FBI whistleblower, you've got bank records, you've got LLCs, you've got foreign nationals, you've got uh, an accusation of, of uh, audio recordings, you've got uh, an IRS supervisory agent now who has made public his concerns. He's not a confidential human source. It's not a third-party report. I mean, we have that. It's, it's almost like, you know, Biden's been divorced 10 times and he's blaming nine women. You, you've got the, I mean, to me, the, I still go back to the starting point. The Bidens are wealthy. How? I mean, if somebody, I mean, if I'm Joe Biden, I, you know, I, I nip this in the bud, as Barney Five says. I mean, I stop this right now. I mean, I have a press conference and I say, hey, let me explain to you, you know, what, what we did to become as wealthy as we have. Uh, we built... We built hotels and golf courses. You know, I mean, we, we, we made some some risky investments. Some paid off, some did not. Guess what? We went to Atlantic City and built a casino. The government helped us, and we failed miserably. I mean, I think people can relate to that. People can under understand that. We opened 12 car dealerships. Three went bust, but nine did well. You know, um, we, we build widgets for a living. What do the Bidens do? What does Jim Biden do for a living? What does Hunter Biden do for a living? What, what does um, uh, Haley Biden do for a living? Why does the grandchild have, uh, uh, you know, an offshore bank account? Why has there been money wired from a foreign government to a grandchild of the president? I mean, aren't those legitimate questions? Now, now James Comer says that that's the truth. Now, now, I'd love to see kind of a PowerPoint, you know, the transfer of funds and the 11 banks and who the banks are. I just think Shapley personalizes it. That's why I think we're, I mean, Words on a sheet of paper don't stir emotions. I mean, they, they're interesting. It raises your curiosity. Wow, did you read what the New York Times said? Well, that'd be a bad example. Um, did you, well, give me a good example. <laughs> right. Did you read what Fox News is reporting? <laughs> you know, what the president may or not have done? But, but I think Shapley appears to be, you know, a normal dude with some street cred, 14 years of the IRS, supervisory agent, got 12, I think he said 12 subordinates, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 10 uh, fellow agents. He and another whistleblower are corroborating. They actually memorialized, archived that meeting when, when, when U.S. Attorney David Weiss said um, to that team, uh, they're not going to let us do what we'd like to do. And I'm paraphrasing here because I don't want to get into the weeds of, you know, so, some of the internal investigative matters. I think he kind of was a little bit careful there of what exactly they were asking for. I mean, obviously, he has said, in general speaking, affidavits, documents, search warrants, they wanted to conduct interviews, they weren't allowed to do any of that. 
uh, this cross-agency stifling of the investigation. Uh, but, but once again, that is a media report. When a guy sits down with someone who most of us consider to be a fair broker, I mean, I think even liberals believe that Brett Baer is a, a kind of a fair man. Trump called him nasty because he asked some um, some specific questions that I think are very worthy of asking. But um, I think Shapley, when Shapley says the IRS recommended um, tax evasion charges in 14, 18, and 19, uh, they were not allowed to proceed with those um, charges. Um, they wanted uh, misdemeanors in 15, 16, and 17, and that was in January 2022. But that's a year and a half ago, and the DOJ didn't concur with those recommendations. I mean, those are incredibly serious accusations that, for whatever reason, uh, the media's chosen to not be interested in and not report on. Um, now, now, Cahaley's theory is this, and I think Roberts has an interesting theory. Robert puts a lot into Susan Rice leaving. Now, Susan Rice, I mean, if there's an Obama acolyte chain of command, I mean, she's near the top. She and Eric Holder, uh, David Axelrod, uh, a couple of others that, that are kind of the, um, I mean, they would be the um, the master sergeants of the uh, Obama acolytes. And when Susan Rice leaves, now, now Robert even said, if I'm not mistaken, Rev, jump mm-hmm. in here. Robert said that he believes they discouraged Biden from running again. That's what he said. And Biden chose to run again. Well, I got to believe you got Susan Rice and the Obama acolytes saying, don't run again. You've got Jim, Hunter, Haley, and the grandkids saying, how do I make a living? I mean, if you're not in politics, how and do Jill. I pay my bills? And Jill, how do I pay my bills? Dr. Biden, don't you refer oh, sorry. to her as Jill? Sorry. Yeah, I think she wrote a she wrote a paper on education. Uh, anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she's a doctor. Right? That's right. Okay. And then don't don't not say doctor. That's right. Well, we were we I mean, if someone that. is choking on an airplane and the um the 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 stewardess, can I say that now? Is that Demeaning? No, um, okay. That's, um, well, I mean, fl- flight attendant. Well, I mean, I it would seem to be. Well, I mean, you saying all women? You saying only people do that? Flight attendant. There you go. I want to be politically correct. The flight <laughs> attendant says, "Is there a doctor in the house? We got a person on the second row choking." Jill Biden just stands up and does the Heimlich maneuver and saves the day because, after all, she is a doctor. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Three six six one zero nine three seven is our phone number. We're live on the air today and tomorrow. Next week, we're out of here. Um, I assume my official role as ambassador to Pauly's Island. There'll be a big ceremony on the beach. <laughs> uh, it'll include blue moon and but anyway, uh, th- that's uh, that's for next week. We've got um, work to do today. And tomorrow. That's right. We have to be on our game for yep. the, at least the, well, you're today going and on tomorrow. A cruise, right? I mean, uh, you're yeah. leaving from Florida, going to the Bahamas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't do that. <laughs> I have to stay in in South Carolina. My my um my the terms of my release won't allow me to, <laughs> to, to, to leave the state. Well, you so, have responsibilities um, as the ambassador to Pauly's well, Island. You a have big, to. Yeah, so it's a big responsibility. You choose what kind of beer and what temperature it needs to be, and, and all that good stuff. <laughs> I I keep asking and going back to this because I you know. You, I want to know what your political instinct and gut says is going to happen. I mean, now we have a situation where, you know, Fox News is is full court press on this Biden story. They have been all morning. Obviously, Brett Baer did the interview with the whistleblower last night. Still, the other networks, the mainstream networks, I looked at CNN.com, haven't seen a thing about it. Um, They're carrying the water. But They're you, doing the bidding. <laughs> 
Well, really? <laughs> Surprise. Well, I mean, let, let's go down this road because Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party is with us. Here's where I land, Rev, this morning. I mean, I may be in a different place tomorrow morning, but, but Shapley is a face. I mean, we've had accounts of whistleblowers. We've had allegations. We've had bank records. We've had LLCs. We've had, you know, an IRS supervisory agent um, make accusations about the stonewalling or slow walking of an investigation, uh, affidavits, document requests, search warrants. Those are words on a sheet of paper. All of a sudden, we've got a dude, a dude who looks like the guy that lives next door making some serious charges against the the internals of our federal government. And you found him credible well, I mean, I, yeah, from but, his interview. But, but here's, well, when I read something, I mean, I, I think that's credible. I mean, I've always thought this was a very credible story, and it doesn't surprise me that the mainstream media is trying to ignore this in hopes that it that it goes away. But but now you've got a face. I mean, there, there's a person willing to make public what he believes happened or didn't happen, and you've got some accusations, you've got some um, some disagreements, some disparity between what he said and what she said and what they said. And but, but I think it is the impetus that forces the media. Because once again, words on a sheet of paper are words on a sheet of paper. Now we got a real dude that people can see and relate to and touch and feel, and he's making some real serious accusations. That is, I think, the, imp- the impetus for this story kind of catching some some traction and becoming a central feature of the um, the news cycle for the next however long. Um, Comer and I think Jason Smith of the Ways and Means, I mean, I would imagine they're continuing um, to investigation. Here's what I'd love to know from our guest, Drew McKissick. Drew, are you there? I'm here, Mr. Ambassador. How uh, are you? I, I am doing well. Thank you for the acknowledgments. So, so, so I now, think it's official now. In all honesty, Drew, so, so I'm a radio show host. You expect me to go down that road. As a party chair, what is your responsibility to the Republican Party when there is blood in the water? What When there seems to be something on the other side that our party could take advantage of, how do you how do you do somewhat of an internal calculus on what to say, do, and what not to say and do? Well, look, I mean, it, it, first off, I think you're exactly right in saying that this puts a face, if you will, to the accusations. That's very different than having it, the unnamed sources and the you know folks who won't go on the record and the deep background stories and so forth. This is totally different. And what we have seen. I think as a result of not just that, but some of the other stuff that has come out within the last, I'd say, two weeks. Uh, you know, just yesterday and uh, within the last week, CBS News has actually committed two acts of random journalism, uh, you know, and actually had a few real stories, believe it or not, in excess of three minutes, not just the cursory 20-second mention, you know, uh, deep in the newscast, where they've gone a little bit more in-depth on this, uh, which was really surprising. You've had more questions popping up in the White House press corps, you know, there that, uh, uh, you know, to a press secretary who's uh, far more used to the softballs, uh, you know, asking real questions. Uh, and so, but in terms of from the party's perspective, uh, you know, our job is to, is to point out what's there when there are problems on the other side, uh, not just in terms of what we usually talk about when it comes to, you know, obviously policy and policy implications, the border, inflation, et cetera. You know, we go down that road with all those things, with the facts and the messaging points that we put together. And we put 
uh, out uh, to uh, other party folks all around the country and throughout the state and the candidates and so forth and try to do as much message coordination as we can uh, to the point that you know people will actually make use of it. Uh, but when you're looking at something like this, and you know, a lot of this is going to be driven by, um, well, you know, some of it will be driven by the media, not nearly as much of it as should be. We'll just say that some of it will be, uh, but a good bit more of it is going to initially be driven, I think, by the House of Representatives, and that's going to be hearings. So, you know, all these guys now, and I would say you can extend this now even to Hunter Biden, can expect to get a subpoena from a House committee at some point and be called in to testify on, you know, in front of the TV cameras. Now, whether or not, you know, Hunter Biden takes the fifth to every question he gets asked is another question entirely. Uh, maybe he does, but how's that going to look for his dad, you know, who's running for election and the son's up there taking the fifth for every question he gets asked? That's not going to be a good look. Uh, but a lot of that is going to be driven, I believe, by House of Representatives now, you know, because they do have subpoena power. I uh, can dig deeper into, you know, bring this IRS agent in. Let's ask him some questions. Well, who, who is he Who is he referencing here that told him to back off? Well, let's bring them in. Let's ask them some questions. You basically already got, the, uh, you know, the uh, attorney general now uh, on the verge of maybe being impeached. You, know, you heard Kevin McCarthy say that the other day. Uh, why? Well, because of these charges now. So they're going to, you know, and plus the fact that it seems that uh, he, at least several sources now indicate uh, that he lied uh, to Congress. Uh, so whether it's a contempt of Congress charge or whatever else may be involved here, but I think a lot of this is going to be on this particular story will be driven by the House when it comes to uh, hearings, and then we'll just pick up on the facts that come out from there, and we'll follow where they lead. Drew, I've always felt in, in my political life, it's about people. I mean, policy obviously is important, but there's no doubt an, an agenda and a platform and, and where you stand on, on, on issue X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. But, but if, I were, if I were giving advice, and I guess I am, um, unsolicited advice, I would probably accept <laughs> that father-son relationships are complicated, but a dad should love mm-hmm. his son to the end of times, sure. that there has to be empathy as part of this. But, but a president's life is not entirely his own. I mean, that, that's just the right. practical reality of politics. I don't like it. My son got a DUI on the day I won the, the South Carolina lieutenant governor's race. And, you know, he probably wasn't the only 18-year-old that got a DUI that day. But, but his was the only one I know that was above the fold in, in, in the state newspaper. How, I mean, isn't there a balancing act that we have to do? In, in other words, th- th- there, there's a situation that involves real people and potentially some real tragedies, how do we incorporate a, an aggressive going after it but remain somewhat empathetic? Is that is that a weird place to, to – I mean, isn't, isn't that kind of sort of the strategy we need to take? I, well, it comes, it comes down to how you drive your message. You know, what angle do you take with the message and so forth. So, you know, and, and the issue here with, uh, with, with the Biden stuff, and with, well, with Hunter Biden, uh, and everything that relates back to him, you know, his father, family, et cetera. The biggest part of the issue, there's a lot of things that, you know, let, let, let's say, let's stipulate, there's a lot of, I'm sure, illegality here, okay, and things are morally wrong. Question is, which of them relates specifically to Biden, the president? Uh, which of them specifically potentially make him vulnerable to, well, let's just say blackmail? I mean, you know, you've heard uh, uh, Senator Grassley uh, you know, who's not given to, uh, you know, uh, uh, wild uh, accusations and so forth, go on the Senate floor, you know, a week ago, or a little over a week ago, and talk about 
uh, how uh, you know one source now, based based on the FBI, uh, you know, when the FBI investigate investigative. Let me help help me get that out there. You did good. That's close uh, enough. Documents. My, my, audio, my audience is accustomed to that. Don't worry about that. They're very accustomed to that. <laughs> but but the, basically putting out there that uh, you have this uh, source over in uh, Ukraine who's got 17 recordings of uh, uh, Hunter Biden and two of his father, I believe it was, uh, you know, recordings. Of, and who knows what he's saying on the record here. Does that put a president of the United States in a position of potentially being in a position of maybe being blackmailed? You know, things like that are very interesting to the country. Uh, you know, there are other things that are illegal, uh, but there are other things that could potentially put the country at risk. You know, where information, you know, secret classified information, whatever, you name it. Those are things that are fair game. That's And then that's, I think, the reason why you heard the whistleblower say uh, that he was told not to pursue angles of this investigation, which would lead back to the president. You know, keep it focused on Hunter. Keep it focused on his taxes. You know, don't pursue the other angles. And I think that's where the serious problem lies, and that's where you're going to see things move, I believe. I want to shift gears to our side, the good guys. Um, Robert mm-hmm. Cahaley was with us yesterday, and Robert said a lot. One thing he said that was particularly interesting to me was a um, uh, kind of a poll they do when they ask who your second choice is. And this is when I thought to myself, I'm glad I'm not Drew McKissick. I'm real glad I'm not in his shoes as SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party. Robert said in the polling of, you know, who is your second candidate, 20 to 30 percent of Trump voters said Trump. And they refused to give a second. I mean, they, they wouldn't say Haley. They wouldn't say Scott. They wouldn't say DeSantis. It was Trump or nobody else. I mean, I, I don't know. That's the inference. And I don't know if they come back and vote for a DeSantis or whomever our nominee is. But, but, but Drew, that's a conundrum. I mean, that, that's problematic. That's a, um, that's an, uh, to me, an, an illogical loyalty to one candidate. Speak to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, look, campaign or primaries are what they are. This is the way we go in and we choose our nominees. And, you know, people will feel more strongly about candidates sometimes than they do in other campaigns, other elections. Some candidates promote more loyalty. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, President Trump, uh, I think it's fair to say, probably has the most fiercely loyal uh, base of support. Uh, as I'm looking you know, around the country right now, all the candidates who are running, I think it's fair to say uh, he would have probably the highest uh, uh, floor of support among all the candidates. Uh, you know, right now, the other candidates, you know, are probably in the one and two percent, three, four percent range, depending on where you are around the country. And maybe some are close to double digits now, depending on what state you're looking at. And, you know, we've got you know, many, many months of primary campaigning to go. Uh, but at the end of the day, and it's why uh, we have uh, in which you've heard about the, the pledge that we'll call on candidates to sign if they're going to participate in the national uh, the Republican debates that we put on which is the same, basically the same pledge that we have here in South Carolina. Uh, whenever candidates run in a primary election, they're basically signing a pledge saying they're not going to run as an independent, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, and they, they understand that if they, they try to do that, that it calls for a lawsuit, blah, 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 blah. The whole point is we've got to nominate somebody. And once we nominate somebody, we're behind that candidate because the point of this is to win. Because losers don't get to make policy. We've got to win. So we're going to have a nominee when this is over, and we're all going to be on board for whoever that nominee is. Because whoever that nominee is, 
is going to be light years ahead of and way better uh, than anybody and anything the Democrats might nominate the president, whether it's Joe Biden or, you know, this stuff manages to sink in and they try to slip in Gavin Newsom or, you know, who knows, whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, we've got to win. And, you know, I suspect whenever, you know, folks who may have taken the position you just referenced earlier uh, get to, uh, you know, the, the end of the road, and if their candidate were not the nominee, they're going to compare whoever our nominee is to Joe Biden or whoever they nominate, and they're going to come home. I mean, typically that's what ha- what happens. But, you know, and presidential campaigns primarily particularly are the worst for this, in my opinion, because – uh, you know, and I liken them, my example is they're kind of like tornadoes, you know, going through a trailer park. You know, they come around and they wreck a lot of damage and then they blow away and they're gone. But we've all still got to live here, you know, in the wreckage, so to speak. You know, we still have to work together and nominate guys for sheriff and nominate, uh, you know, a gal for state house, or state senate or whatever. Uh, we got to go about the business of governing ourselves. And that means working together to cobble together a majority and actually go win elections. And if we let campaigns come along and get us here locally stirred up and worked up to the point where we're mad at so-and-so because who they support, who they don't support, and I'm not going to work with you anymore. Like I said, those campaigns are going to be gone at a certain point, and we're still going to be here, and we still have to work together to win. But, but Drew, we've got the Paul Ryans of the world on CNBC saying anybody but yep. Trump. I mean, and then, and, and, right, you know, and, right. and I want to get your – and this is a blunt question. It's probably unfair, but I'll do it anyway. Aren't we struggling with whether we're going to be a party of voters or a party of donors? I mean, isn't that a a kind of a complicated convergence that you, I, and everybody else who gives a rip about the Republican Party are dealing with today? I mean, it's not as simple as that, but that certainly is one of the central ingredients. Well, look, I mean, you don't, there are three fundamentals in politics, whether you're running for school board or president of the United States, and that is you've got to have a message that resonates with people. You've got to organize them. That means, you know, identifying your voters, sometimes training activists, organizing, getting candidates uh, 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 you know, to run, and then helping them run, and then getting them elected. And then you have, number three is you have to raise the money to make number one and number two possible. Uh, it takes all of that. If you are absent any one of those elements, you are most likely to have a losing campaign. What does that mean? That means we need donors, whether they are $5 a month donors, whether they're Silver Elephant Club members, or the SEGOP, or whether there's somebody who will give a max out contribution to a candidate and to the party. It takes all of that. Uh, and so we don't need to be a party of donors. We don't need to be a party of just activists. We've got to be a party of everybody who can bring something fruitful to the table so we can win. Uh, and anytime we start trying to draw lines and say, and these people can't be here, or these people can't be here, uh, you know, we got a problem. I mean, so I mean, other than when it comes around our platform, you know, a platform is a consensus document. It's not a everybody gets what they want document, but it's a consensus. So, but within the boundaries of a platform, you know, that's what we've agreed. We believe so. We want people to come to the table who believe this and who support our conservative ideals. But outside of that, we can't be excluding people because, again, politics is about math. Good politics is about addition and multiplication. Bad politics is about subtraction and division. Very well explained. Drew, thank you for your time. Um, you can call us next Thursday, but we won't be here. I'll probably be conducting whatever official responsibilities are required for me. Um, I'll You'll probably be, be out of gas. Diplomatic I, mission. Yeah, I'll probably be out of gas by next Thursday. So um, I hope I'll be laying in a hammock. So, hey, appreciate your time. Appreciate you all you do. And, I, and we'll catch up the week after July 4th. We'll do it. Have a great one. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll be back. 
on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Ryan Schmelz gets the honors. He's Fox News Radio's, um, I guess, commentator or, or reporter from our nation's capital. Ryan, I have waited with bated breath every morning for this story to be on our rundown, and you're, you're, you're the guy that gets to deal with me on the IRS whistleblower um, talking about the Biden scandal in an interview yesterday with Fox News' Brett Baer. And, Ryan, I made the argument that no longer are there just words on a sheet of paper. There's a real dude who's making some serious accusations about the internals of our of our federal government. From a reporter's perspective, what is the story this morning, Ryan? Right. So, so we're talking about Gary Shapley, who was a supervisor of the investigation at the IRS in the Hunter Biden and his uh, financial affairs. And he says that critical steps in the investigation were quote, put on the back burner. And he also doubled down his claims that the entirety of the investigation from the Justice Department probe uh, into the president's son was influenced by politics. And he named he made a number of different claims uh, related to the U.S. attorney, David Weiss, who was overseeing uh, the investigation about how he was hamstrung by the Department of Justice, but also how the Department of Justice interfered with search warrants that happened back in 2020 that prohibited the investigators from getting more evidence in the case. So, Ryan, how do we find out who's telling the truth? I mean, is it the ways and means, the oversight? I mean, so, some of the um, some of the investigative committees in Congress are beginning to answer or try to find answers to some of these questions. But where do we go now? I mean, we've got some disparity in what he said and he said, and I'm talking about um, David Weiss and Merrick Garland and these whistleblowers. How do we get to the truth? Right. Well, I don't think that the Oversight Committee's investigation in uh, the President Biden and, and his family is going to go anywhere. This is only going to get uh, probably more heated up after this. Certainly, I think that the House Ways and Means Committee is going to want to talk to more people if more whistleblowers do, in fact, come forward. But really, I, I think it's about just interviewing as many witnesses as, po- as possible from here. And then we have to just kind of wait and see what the Department of Justice has to say. You know, Merrick Garland came out last week the attorney general and really uh, shot down a lot of these accusations pretty much said that uh, David Weiss had full authority to make any decision that he wanted to uh, and make any prosecutorial decision that he wanted to, and that there was no uh, hindrance of that. So certainly uh, you have two different conflicting stories here and we don't know which one is, is accurate or if they're both inaccurate, but certainly we can count on congressional subpoenas. Is that fair? I, I think that's definitely going to be a, a major possibility moving forward for sure. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Hey, you too, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, um, yeah, we're, we're trying to, um, I mean, it's been a story for a long time. It's just, uh, it's kind of the tree falling in the woods and nobody hears it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's there. And, um, Rev said it would have been interesting this morning to watch MSNBC and, uh, and how much time they dedicate to this story. And I can't imagine I mean, if you're a Biden supporter and some of the conservative media outlets are making these accusations, I mean, why wouldn't you want a full accounting of what the facts are? I mean, if somebody's accusing you of something that you profess your innocence to, why not have an investigation? I mean, if, if I'm being accused of something that I didn't do, then, you know, the the, the first thing I want to let's get to the bottom of it. I mean, well, let's well, find well, at least out what come the out truth and is. deny it. I mean... Can you imagine if you're accused of this kind of thing and you're the president, why don't you go out in front of a camera and say, this is all bull? But I mean, to some degree, hadn't he informally denied it? I mean, he hadn't, hadn't he said, no, 
or oh, malarkey, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, you know, that's when, you know, we're, not, we're, not, we're you know, Putin's losing the war in Iraq. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> that's a stupid question. That's what he said last time. That's a stupid him. question. Yeah. And then he looks with this confounding, I, I don't know, it's just, um, it's concerning. I mean, I, I'll say it's concerning. His state of mind is very, uh, is very concerning to me. But, but I think we're being forced. I mean, I, I think sooner or later. Now, now, Robert believes that this is the beginning of them deciding Biden is not uh, the best candidate moving forward. I just think they've always done a calculus. And by that, I mean the Democrats. And, you, you know, you, when, when some of the, well, I mean, why do you say they? I mean, aren't we all Americans? Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's a binary choice. I mean, it's a Republican and it's a Democrat. And half the country kind of like Republicans running thing and, and the other half like Democrats running things. So it is we and they. And then I think you're a bit naive to not buy. I mean, it's not all of us in this thing together. I mean, it's one side trying to get its way. It's another side trying to get its way. And um, and that's why we have elections. Um, I didn't get to this with Drew, but, but I thought about it. Uh, I didn't want to keep him forever. And I didn't want him to stay for another segment, try to be respectful of his time. Drew's a busy guy. I mean, we're in the middle of a presidential campaign. He's co-chair of the GOP. I would imagine he's trying to put, you know, is Trump going to debate or not? Uh, that's a big question. But um, but but I read this morning in some of the uh, Rasmussen polling and Gallup polling that two out of three Americans, it's interesting that um, they included this word, 66% of Americans are concerned the 2024 elections will be affected by, you ready? Cheating. I just never Here's imagined uh, impropriety. You know, um, that, that's a polling word. but And you wonder why they did it. But Gallup and Rasmussen used that particular word, cheating. 40% are very concerned about cheating. 32% are not. So, I mean, I, I think there's an element within the Democrat Party that believes, you know, well, they did it. I mean, we can get a dead man elected. I mean, we're so much better at ballot harvesting. We're so much better at voting season than the Republicans are, it doesn't matter if Biden can't spell his name or not. It doesn't ma- matter if Biden's implicated in some sort of scandal or not. I mean, we can do what we need to do and win Pennsylvania, win Wisconsin, win Michigan, win Arizona. Uh, I don't think there's organized in Nevada, uh, Georgia, another state that is kind of up for grabs now. Um, so so I, I think as part of this, the Democrats, some of the Democratic operatives are not panicking because they believe in some of these states that did very little in addressing, uh, you ready, the improprieties of voting uh, that Gallup and Rasmussen refer to as. I just think that's an interesting choice of word. Because, I mean, I, I would imagine 66% of Americans would be concerned about the 2024 elections and they, they're being affected by improprieties. But cheating's kind of a simple word. And people don't like to take, they just feel a little above that. I don't know about cheating, man. I mean, I think some things happen, but I don't know about cheating. It's just interesting that they included that word. Now, 32% are not concerned at all about cheating. That's your Democrat base. Because <laughs> why would, why would right. you be concerned about something that, that plays to such an advantage? But, um, but I do believe that. Uh, I think there's an element within the Democrat Party that believes, you know, we'll win this thing. Uh, no matter what condition Biden's in, no matter how many charges are brought against he and his and his family, um, because we're so much better 
at the voting season. And that's what we have now. We don't have elections that win the hearts and minds of the American citizenry. We figure out a way to get as many people to vote in our favor as we possibly can. And and I think we've done a decent enough job in uh, using some of the Bill Doyle information that convinces me, you know, you can't explain that high turnout and some of those heavily. I mean, if we had 85%, historically we've had 62, 3, 4, 5% turnout in some of these precincts. The, the Republican precinct stayed about the historical average. The Democrat precincts increased to 80, 82, 83, uh, as much as 90% in some of these uh, precincts. There's a county in Wisconsin, and I know I'm, I'm bringing up old, um, old stories, but there's a, there's a county in Wisconsin where every single senior in a senior home voted. I mean, that, that's, you got, I think it was 312 people in the senior home. Every single, I mean, they had 100%. Some have Alzheimer's. So, some are in as bad a shape as Joe Biden is. But every damn one of them voted. And, and and we're to believe that that nothing nothing to see here nothing mm-hmm. happened here. Yeah, you can't so, even ask the question. Well, and, and I, I just think that the Republicans and this really goes to kind of kind of what a lot of us a lot of you have talked about. And and you know I don't want to push too hard on Drew because I think they're doing what they can. But I think we're playing uh, you know catch up in a in a in a big way in trying to you know uh, build a machine as equipped as the Democrats have um, at this voting season this thirty day window that people can vote unsolicited mail-in ballots in some states uh we know the 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 signature verification in some states a computer matches and verifies a signature and it was a um, a threshold of 80 percent in other words josh's signature i mean you don't sign your name the exact same way every time and i don't but you got to sign it with an 80 percent there's some computer out there that says okay this is um there's an 80% chance this is the same guy. They lowered that to about 55%. I mean, there's a 55% chance this is the same guy. That was in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. I don't think it happened in but those two states, but it was a um, a changing of the uh, of the voter signature verification requirements. And, and I mean, as we get closer, th- that'll become a larger part of... Now, now, I want to give Trump some credit. We beat up on Trump a little bit yesterday. I want to give Trump some credit. He's not talking as much about that. That's kind of encouraging to me. I mean, you know, as soon as I say that, he'll, you know, something will come over <laughs> over the computer. I mean, he's talking about the economy. He's talking about energy. He's talking about, you know, Bidenomics and, and Trumponomics, I guess. Um, uh, energy and, and inflation mainly is what he's talking about. Uh, he is actually, he and, and DeSantis are saying some of the same things about, you know, disassembling the government. Trump says one of the big mistakes, I can't believe this, but he said one of the mistakes he made was not taking advantage of every authority the president had at his avail. Um, He believes that he could have fired far more um, government workers without Congress's approval, and he regrets not doing that. Um, So, so, I mean, basically offering up a plan to bypass Congress and starve um, the, the ruling class, the deep state, the elites, the establishment, uh, the cathedral, we, we've referred to them as, as a lot of, I may try to find that on the other side. It's kind of an interesting take because he is reciting some scholars, some, some constitutional scholars who say the president can 
Well, when Congress appropriates money, it doesn't mean it has to be spent. And, and there's some, some questionable language about what the president can or cannot do if Congress appropriates money and, and the president signs the budget into law. There's some things the president can do to um, I just, just kind of starve the beast. You know, yeah, they appropriated the money, but I hadn't signed it into law. Therefore, um, the Treasury can't commit to spending it. And, you know, um, the, the Fed can't commit to buying the debt. That's kind of the model we use now. We borrow the money. Right. The Fed buys the debt. <laughs> Uh, we hope China buys some of that debt. India buys um, some of that debt. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. It's been kind of a weird show, not a weird show, but a different show in that we've had a lot of um, calls from people other than uh, our listeners and and friends and supporters out there <laughs> in Radio Land. Uh, thanks for the patience. We're on the air what another 40 50 minutes today and then four hours tomorrow and then the rev and i are out of here for a week taking a vacation rejuvenating and restoring our our souls and senses yeah you're right we have had a lot of guests on the schedule this morning thursday morning guests and extra guests as well and i'm kind of interested in this next guest uh they'll be with us here in just a minute uh you've talked about this american compass uh group that you have have uh have found and you're kind of following what they've been up to well, I, I've just always believed in their position. I mean, since Trump shows up in 16, it goes back to me running for office in 10. I mean, when I ran for lieutenant governor in 2010, my consultants had, had kind of a, um, I mean, they, they had a kind of a boilerplate cookie cutter way to win elections in South Carolina. And if you win the primary, you win the general because South Carolina is one of the reddest states in America. And there was kind of a, um, you know, an expected methodology that you used and employed to win the election. And I knew, I mean, I come from a town with no stoplight. I've seen the struggles that, that average everyday Americans are experiencing. And I'm not blaming the body politic for all of this. So, I mean, the, the world has, has changed. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, but the endorsement of globalism, the endorsement of interventionism, um, NAFTA, GATT, TPP, I mean, all these trade deals, I saw the human carnage. And I knew that sooner or later, someone would touch a nerve. I, I never imagined to be a billionaire with a supermodel wife and his own private jet. I mean, I didn't. I didn't expect that to happen. But I knew that the politically disenchanted, the economically disenchanted, were going to find some sort of um, political savior out there that they felt gave them a fighting chance. And, and once Trump shows up and gets elected in 16, it was obvious he was the bull in the china shop. I mean, he was the political disruption. But, but I never believed he had the interest and maybe not even ability to build uh, kind of kind of a systematic agenda. In other words, the intellectual underpinning. I've, I've congratulated J.D. Vance a lot on this show for some of the thoughts that he brings to the forefront about economic policy relating to, to, to what I'd call America first, the political movement, not Trump. Trumpism is about the man. America first is a political agenda that I think can sustain itself over the long haul if it's well thought out. Now, if it becomes kind of idol worship and all about one person, it'll flame out like every other populist-generated movement has before. But, but as I began reading, doing the show it takes to, doing the work it takes to prepare for the radio show, I came across American Compass. And it's like, aha, okay, they're saying some things that I think are worthy, very worthy of consideration as we try 
to provide the intellectual underpinning that I think leads to a, a realignment within the Republican Party that is generational. So that's why I asked Josh to reach out to someone at America Compass because I know many of you out there feel uh, uh, kind of a similar way to the way I feel. And he reached out and got a policy advisor named Gabriela Rodriguez, and she's with us this morning. Ms. Rodriguez, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I am doing well. So, I mean, if you heard my my diatribe, am I misrepresenting the mission of American Compass? Well, sir, I, I think uh, calling it a bull in a china shop is pretty similar to how we think about it. You know, however you take it, the 2016 election was definitely an earthquake. It showed how some of these uh, longstanding conservative institutions just didn't have the answer to the troubles that real people were going through. And, you know, what you touched on about how globalization destroyed families and communities. Well, those are definitely problems that the sort of stock message just didn't have answers to. And a lot of our work really focuses on that. You know, we talk to real people. We try to come up with real solutions. And just because we've had a theory or a dogma for decades doesn't mean it's right or has the answers that we need. So is this an attempt? Are you guys trying to be a part of attempting to to change the the perspectives of the American, because I would argue the Republican Party historically, and I'm guilty of this. I mean, if someone said, uh, where do you land? I would have been a neocon. I mean, I, I really and truly would have uh, until I began accepting uh, a little bit like Tucker. Tucker would be the highest profile guy who says, formerly a neocon, I admit I was wrong. Globalism and interventionism has not been good for um, for our population. So, so, so in essence, is that what you guys are trying to do? is be forward-thinking and leaning into kind of this realignment of the Republican Party from kind of a globalist interventionist to a more domestic-oriented. I, I think that's a fair way of uh, summing up some of what we do. Uh, you know, I would say we're a conservative economic policy think tank, and we're focused on, you know, building an economic consensus that puts family, community, and industry first and makes sure that they're central to the nation's, you know, liberty and prosperity. So basically, anything we do, we think, you know, is this good for the family? Is this good for our nation? And that kind of gives us a really good uh, starting point to really go down the line and make our decisions. So any sort of policy we put out there is because we believe it's good for regular Americans and regular people, not because it benefits somebody far off who shows up once a year to try to get your vote. So if you are a thing, have you been received in Washington? Um, Are members of the party and caucus receptive? to some of your initiatives? So we've been we've been really blessed to work with a number of, of really good partners. We had an event recently with a number of senators like Senator Vance and Senator Rubio of Florida and Senator Cotton and Senator Young where they got the chance to sit down and talk about how uh, they're working on different parts of the same sort of policy that we focus on. And it's been really encouraging to see a lot of members, especially, you know, those who are sort of following President Trump's lead, really stop and think about what it takes to deliver for folks back home instead of just voting according to voting according to whatever lobbyists give them. So I think we've we've had a mixed reception. Some folks are pretty dug in on their old policies and old priorities, but we're doing our best to make headway. But is it fair to say, Gabriel, well, we didn't build this machine in a single election cycle. We're certainly not going to disassemble and rebuild in an election cycle. I mean, is there a time window? Is there a perspective? Are there goals and benchmarks 
In other words, does American Compass hope to accomplish this this year, election cycle, and a couple of other things? And do you prioritize legislation? And, and I mean, I think you would agree with me. It's unrealistic to believe that we change it overnight. I mean, this will take several election cycles, gaining more influence, gaining more uh, respect of those who do make policy decisions. Well, as I'm sure you know, sir, we we didn't get here overnight. It took about 40 years to kind of end up in this place, and we do see it as an ongoing process. There's a piece of it where you just have to sit down and talk with folks and get them to see that uh, they have to believe what they see on the ground, and it is tougher for families to thrive. And even if the data looks one way well, people are having a tougher time making families and buying homes and settling down. And on the legislative piece, uh, we've had the chance to work with a couple of offices to introduce a couple of bills, especially focused on uh, workers and education. So we see it as a combination of both. You know, this is an ongoing process. We're working with folks, meeting them where they are, and doing our best to make sure that we start having more and more members of Congress with the family first priorities. How do, how do you develop a policy? And I mean, I'm, I'm formerly in politics. I served at the state level and, and local level, so I understand uh, the way some of the subcommittees and committees work. But as a think tank, I mean, how, how do you decide, okay, here is a policy that we believe um, advantages the American worker, advantages uh, the American uh, family, advantages uh, the American way of life? How do, uh, to, I mean, I, you, obviously, I want the cliff note. I mean, you can't tell me every specific detail, but but kind of express to our audience how once you believe something is important enough to make as a policy initiative, how, how does a think tank work through that? That's a great question. You know, I'd like to tell you we can just push a button and have a perfect bill come out and it becomes law the next day. But honestly, we just start out seeing a problem. So something like, let's say, workers, right? There's plenty of businesses who need trained workers, plenty of workers who want to find some sort of training to get a job. But it's difficult to help them, you know, find each other and be able to get employed and start contributing to their communities. So when we see a problem like that, we start thinking, hey, what sort of programs do we already have? Why aren't the things that we have in place working the way they're supposed to? And what could we do to fix that or else find some better way of doing things? So after brainstorming, we'll talk to some of our partners, people who are already you know, interested in a policy. So in this case, with the worker question, we got the chance to talk to Senator Cotton's team, and they were also really interested in that. So then we sit down, we hash out some details, we, you know, talk to some of our Compass advisors who are also experts in a couple of fields. And after a couple of weeks, we come up with a, a proposal. So kind of like a, a one pager with a couple bullet points, like here's the problem, here's the solution, here's what we wanna do about it. And then after that, um, you get the bill language written up and then it's, it's introduced. But you know, that's kind of more the technical side as far as the actual, you know, priority, again, it all goes back to what's the current problem right now? Who do we know that's interested in working to solve it? And what can we do to help them, you know, come about with a good solution to that issue? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 65% of Republican voters consider themselves or identify as America firsters. I mean, you know, whether the establishment-oriented Republican likes it or not, there's been a realignment. Now, the party may have to be drug kicking and screaming, but the voters have clearly said, you know, we choose this direction over over the, the other, the historical, you know, 40, 50-year run you talk about with neoconservatism and, and globalism. But but how can those people not just believe in America first, but support an organization like American Compass? 
Well, that's a, that's a great question. I would say just you're welcome to take a look at our website, AmericanCompass.org. We've got a, a number of policies. We're always open to hearing recommendations or ideas from people. Um, and we also do a couple of surveys a couple times a year, just getting a sense of what people really want. So any sort of, you know, questions or information that you guys would like, please feel free to check out our website and we'll be more than happy to talk with you all. But I would say just in terms of, you know, looking at America first policy, just anytime you look at an idea, think about how this will actually impact people on the ground, how it'll impact your family. You know, do the promises you hear actually match up with what you see happening in your life. Well explained. Gabriella, thank you for your time and good luck in the future. Thanks so much, sir. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. American Compass Policy Advisor. Gabriela Rodriguez talking a little bit about, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's the perfect side, but it's certainly not. Um, we're not the perfect radio show. Uh, <laughs> close, but not quite. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very close. Very but close. but in, in, in all fairness, I mean, they, they do go into great detail and specificity about, you know, I mean, to me, they've done a better job and this would be expected. They've done a really good job of identifying the dilemma. And, and, and I'll tell you, as a conservative-oriented organization, they basically imply, you ready, that capitalism became an idol. It stopped mm. be, being an economic theory and instead became an idol that you worship at the altar of. I'll, I'll give an example. They're offering a policy initiative. There's no way in Hades this flies. And it probably doesn't work. But, but it's where you start. They're arguing, or one of their policy positions is, um, cause you got to get in the weeds here and, and I'd love to, this is where I miss being, you know, part of a, a, a deliberative body. I mean, this cause I enjoy this a lot. So they're saying that, and then they've done some, some pretty extensive legwork here. They're saying that about one third of all businesses that declare bankruptcy and go chapter seven liquidation, do it because they became too leveraged. It's the, you know, the widget wasn't the best, but it wasn't the worst but they borrowed too much money, they expanded to whatever, whatever, but leverage was uh, the reason for their demise. Rev shaking his head, been around business a long mm-hmm. time. Doesn't surprise you. Mm-hmm. Uh, really and truly, I would have thought higher than 30%. Um, but they're arguing, or, or they, they want a policy. I mean, stick with me for a second, because this is pretty radical. They want a policy that says when a company declares Chapter 7, because of debt. Now, now, once again, we're, we're getting out there now. You know, who decides that? How do they decide that? What was the, the benchmark? But, but this, this is where you begin the debate. But if a company declares bankruptcy and has to be liquidated, they believe the workers should be entitled to a severance pay package before the creditors. In other words, if a company declares Chapter 7, and has to basically liquidate to pay the debts and obligations of the business, the creditors are first in line. Um, Dave Baker, you know, widget manufacturing company goes bust. And Rev owes the bank a million dollars. And Rev has, you know, $650,000 worth of property and business and, you know, a building and land and whatnot. He's got equity in the land, equity in the building. Um, The creditors get satisfied. I mean, the creditors get, they don't get the million. They'll take a judgment out on it, but he gets, you know, that they get the 650 grand. Um, what they're arguing is the, 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 the employees didn't make an inferior widget. The company was irresponsibly run and they borrowed too much money. Um, the banks lend them too much money. So now the, the counter argument is why would the banks lend money to businesses? If that's the case, 
Well, I mean, the banks are in the business of lending money. So, so I'm not saying that's the, the answer. I mean, it's certainly not the answer. And, 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 and the natural, I mean, when I read it, I'm like, okay, high five. But then I go, okay, but well, that, that would really de-incentivize banks from lending money to marginal companies. Uh, the, you know, the allocation of capital, the flow of capital. you got to have access to capital. If you don't have access to capital, businesses just don't work. Um, but, but those are some of the interesting perspectives they're bringing to the table. J.D. Vance is a, um, a big part of this organization, and I think Vance understands it probably better than most because he lived in Appalachia. I mean, he watched, you know, where he grew up, similar to what I did. He watched where he grew up, you know, die up and, or dry up and die. Just, just go away. I mean, the, the, um, the hope and optimism, the hope-timism required to believe tomorrow is a better day just ain't there in some of these rural areas in America, some of these, these distressed areas in America. And I don't, I don't know that that's partisan. I mean, I really and truly, when I think of a, you know, a Republican and a Democrat, conservative, liberal, big government, less government, I, I don't know. Domestic policy seems to me to be kind of a, um, I mean, we're, a lot of us are singing off the same sheet of music when we say, you know, capitalism is not an idol, but rather an economic theory. Uh, we've distorted and manipulated capitalism in the favor of capital to the impediment or, or the, um, the cost that has been paid to labor. And I'm not talking about labor unions. I'm not talking about organized labor. I'm talking about a hard day's work deserves a hard day's pay or a good day's pay. And, and you know, we've um, the distortion and manipulation of capitalism has advantaged capital to the disadvantage of labor. And what American Compass has convinced me, their policies are trying to right that wrong. They're trying to rebalance the way we view and treat capital via policy and the way we view and treat. Because what's happened when you so manipulate and distort, I mean, this is where I could be a professor. When you so manipulate and distort capitalism to the point of overweighting capital, underweighting labor, you create labor arbitrage. I mean, you create businesses that say, wow, we can make more money building the widgets or allow the widgets to be built in Malaysia. And there's got to be some mutual benefit. Capitalism as an economic theory, not an idol, but capitalism as a successful economic theory has to be mutually beneficial. One side can't win 80% of the time at the expense of the other. And and when I look at capital and and labor, those are central ingredients and they have to be mutually beneficial, or you have some sort of an uprising, some sort of a revolution, and and, and populism rears its head, and the next thing you know, the economic system that we live and abide by is unstable. The one thing we brought to the table for, for since our, our early days has been political stability, and, and the political instability that has existed in other countries makes it too risky to allocate capital or, or to invest in that economy. And I just think we're, we're, we're teetering there. We better be very, very careful. And I think there's some wrongs that need to be righted. I think American Compass is barking up uh, the right tree. Take a break. Back in a few. Let me read one paragraph, and then we'll go to our caller. You ready? Because this, um, this is on American Compass, their website. And I've read it up one side and down the other. I've bored my wife with some of the, um, some of the details. You ready? I'll read this real quick. The China challenge is not only or even primarily one of national security. It is that, too, to be sure. But the fundamental problem is that America's free market economy is incompatible with China's state-controlled one, and American liberty and democracy are incompatible with Chinese communism. America must sever 
its economic relationship with China to protect its market from subversion by the Chinese Communist Party. Disentangling our economies will be costly, but the alternative of accepting CCP control of our assets and investment, dominance in our supply chains, and influence over our institutions will cost far more. I mean, that's kind of the, that, that's the, um, that's the initial, I mean, they've got a 35 page, um, policy paper on protecting the American market from subversion by the CPP, uh, mm-hmm. excuse me, the CCP, CCP, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese communist party, eight, four, three, six, six, one. I mean, that's, that's, that's just this side of born to run <laughs> yeah. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Incompatible and severed. Yeah. You know, wow. it's just time to just, uh, you know, just admit that they're a communist nation. Their um their beliefs are incompatible. You know we've had this I don't know we, we've had this belief that China will at one so, at some point in time embrace democracy and there will be a similar uh, a similarly controlled economy. I mean that to me that's naive. That's unbelievably um naive. Accept China as what they are and don't allow them to subvert our economy um by controlling supply chains and dependency on them being the manufacturing base. That's kind of what we're arguing here. Um, our, you know, is manufacturing good for the American worker? Yes. Is manufacturing good for the American family? Yes. Is manufacturing good for the American way of life? Yes. So let's import manufacturing into our homeland and stop allowing China to corrupt the manufacturing around the world by it's um, communist and state-run control of of their manufacturing economy. Let's go to the phone. I'm sorry, Barry in Chirag. Good morning. Hey, morning, guys. Hey, hey, Ken. Any any chance you know who I'm voting for? Any chance? I got an idea. Okay. All right. Just want to point that out. Hey, uh, Ken. Do you happen to catch that Paul Ryan interview? I did. Hmm. What did you think of it? Uh, you know, he's a um, he's a turncoat. I mean, he's a the the, the never Trumper turns into a Democrat. They turn into an operative, and they turn into a Biden supporter. And uh, we, we should be ashamed that we took Paul Ryan as seriously as, as we did for as long as we did. I mean, he was our VP candidate. He was our he was our golden child at one time. Right. And he sits on what board? He's on right now. He's on the Fox, Fox board. Yeah, currently. Yeah, currently. So uh, the Murdochs, you know, foreigners uh, pulling the strings. Ryan's pulling the strings. Ryan's been pulling the strings since he left office. Um, what, did he, what did he say on that interview? Said hey. anybody but Trump? Yeah. So lets me know who uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be with. Well, he said not only is he a never-Trumper, he's a never-again-Trumper. Never-again-Trumper. And what did he say? It would be dangerous. Did you, did you hear the language he said? It sure would I did. Be dangerous for America. And for Trump, but but but, but but Ryan is a globalist corporatist shield. I mean, that's Absolutely. who he is. That's Absolutely. how his bread gets buttered, though. Bear, you know that. I mean, the guy makes that. more money than he's ever made in his life, being a shield. Uh, you know, for corporatist and globalist and interventionist, he's doing the bidding for the military-industrial complex. He's doing the bidding for this, uh, you know, corporatist agenda that Republicans historically have believed in, and we got to purge our party of that leadership. That's they, right. They, they That's can right. still be a part, but they can't be in leadership. That's right, Ken. Hey, and, and I got two more questions for you since I don't get to call in much anymore. Hey, would you say that Robert Kennedy Jr. is more of a populist now than a Democrat? Without question. Okay, great. So would he, 
like he's actually in my like I, I'm actually thinking about it, right? Like I would love him to be the VP. Well, I said the other week. I don't know if you heard me or not. I would vote for Robert Kennedy before I would half the Republican field. Absolutely, absolutely, without a hands down. Anything. He listen. There's two people on this earth, uh, Ken, that understands what they're looking at. Robert Kennedy Jr. They killed his family, right? Right. We, I, you say two, I say three. I say they killed three of his family members, right? So he knows what he's up against. And Trump, Trump knows. I mean, they're coming after him all hands on deck, right? He knows he could be, you know, I don't want to say the word, at any time. Those two people are still going forward, and the other ones. I want to know what the other ones will sacrifice, right? What, what worries you most about DeSantis? I'd be interested in that. Uh, what worries me is he, he's a globalist uh, that he would turn on us, like all the other ones have always done. That's he's just Ken. It just does not add up. So you don't think he's any different than all the rest? No, I do not. Okay, I think that... he might be a little bit more MAGA, but when it comes, listen, he's he doesn't have money, so they own him, right? They own him. They don't own Kennedy because they killed they killed half his family. They can't own Trump, right? Because he he's a billionaire. That's why they have to get rid of them, too. They won't even let Robert Kennedy on YouTube now. So it's already started. So my, my, my point with DeSantis is I, I think he's a lot of theater. I think his wife is running the campaign. And, and, and listen, we talk about masculinity, right? We talk about it. We talk about it on this show, male masculinity. You letting her run the show? Then I know who's going to run the show when you get in there. So I'm not down with that. I, I won't listen like you preached the last six years. If we can't have have our moment right here, I want it all blown up. Barry, but yesterday all I tried to argue, and I think I mean if you listen to go back and listen I to what I said, I all I said was DeSantis today appears to give Republicans the best chance to beat the Democrat. Okay. okay. I, 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 I didn't say vote for Trump or vote for DeSantis or right. vote for Haley or vote for Scott. I'm simply looking at data, and okay. the data tells me that right now, today, that could change in a week. It certainly will change more than one time. But but as we sit here today, the data tells me that DeSantis is the most MAGA-like candidate with the best chance to beat a Democrat. Okay, and can I and can I argue this? Sure, you could. Okay, let me say this to everybody listening today: if 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 Trump or Kennedy or whoever cannot, if Trump cannot win this election, we deserve everything we get. You're te- I don't know a single Democrat that will vote for Biden right now. That's the God's honest truth. I, and I work with a lot of them. They will tell you right now they will vote for Trump all day because it's all about that pocket. It's all about that pocket. I preach to them all the time about changing it's about that money. When they don't have that money in that pocket, they're going to vote. And I'm telling you, they're not excited about DeSantis. They know what Trump did. They know how much money they had in their pocket when they had Trump in office. They believed all the lies, and now they don't believe it because guess what? They're watching what they're doing to them. So you can say DeSantis, and, I, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But if but we, but I, but I want to reiterate, Barry, Barry I'm, I'm, I'm not saying DeSantis. I'm saying the data says. I mean, it, it, you know, my, my opinion is, I mean, I'd rather have Trump. I mean, I'd rather have Trump 10 times than I had DeSantis because I think you get the real deal. You get the original item. But, but I think we've got to, as we progress through this campaign, 
we collectively are going to have to make some decisions uh, about, you know, who has the best chance to beat the Democrat now. I mean, it could not even be Biden. I mean, it could be Kamala Harris. It could be uh, the pretty boy from California. We don't know. I, my, my accounting yesterday was a snapshot. It'll be different a month from now, two months, three months from now. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. And I want to reiterate, I mean, I got accused yesterday of trying to tell people, no, nah, I'm not, I would never do that. I mean, I don't know how to fix my mouth to tell you how to vote. I'm going to try and relay as accurately as I know how what the data says to me. And the data says to me that today, if the election were held, DeSantis has a better chance to beat Biden than Trump does. That could be different a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. Who knows what the future holds? I don't. You don't either. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, man, what did Al Davis say, Ken? Just win, win, baby. baby. Got to win, baby. I, I think about today, you brought up that stuff about Hunter, man. You always talk about that Seinfeld watcher. Uh, you know, what's interesting is Seinfeld actually was on the Today Show as his own character, which is kind of a weird thing. He wore a puffy shirt. It's amazing how uh, the real-life Elaine, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, uh, was a host for that make-believe virtual 2020 Democratic convention. And their version of the story, I watched uh, Today's show today, and Kristen Welker, she's going to take over for uh, your your buddy uh, on Meet the Press. But anyway, th- their narrative is the son is recovering. This is a family issue. Biden loves his son. He says things in the past that uh, maybe he wasn't in his right mind, and then they go to that caption where Biden says no. Uh, and then they talk about how he's on some sort of CPAP machine. So that's what they do. But I'm going to correct you a little. I think you said something about people can relate to people that open businesses and actually go out and deal with people and work in the private sector. No, they don't. That's the problem that we have. Because think about how many people's livelihoods are based on reliance on the establishment of government. I mean, think about, I mean, that's just gotten out of control you depend on it either to, 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 to sort of earn a living working for the government or they're just giving you money. And then you said something, uh, you know, people will go out and do real things. No, they don't anymore. They sit behind a computer and do virtual jobs. And that's the Democrats know that, my man. So that's their base. And, and anyway, I'll leave you at that. You have a good day. I don't disagree. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. I don't disagree with what David said. I mean, I probably do get that wrong. I mean, I, I trust my gut. I trust my instinct. It more times than not leads me down the right road, but I probably am out of touch with with with, with, with what sort of life people live waiting on the government to do X, Y, or Z. I mean, there's probably no doubt about that. I mean, I probably don't have a genuine, sincere understanding of, you know, where my life relates to what government decides to do. I mean, I, I was raised by a self-made business guy. I mean, that's about the only answer you need, right? I mean, self-made business guys don't wait around uh, much on anything. I mean, they just don't. They do their thing. Uh, they count on themselves. They knock things down that get in their way. They don't call some government agency. I mean, obviously, that there's kind of interaction you're forced to have with government. But um, but David's right. I mean, I probably do believe that the normal, the abnormal, what I perceive to be abnormal is probably a little more normal than I would ever imagine. I mean, I, I, I'm in... 
you know, society and I'm waiting on government to do something because it's in obviously uh, my best interest. Work is not a big part of my life. Taking care of myself is not a big priority in my life. Um, you know, getting married is not a big, no, these things, these, the, these, the, these, these virtues that were elemental in my life were probably not in, in more people than I imagine. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's no question about it. Um, you know, thinking, you know, where society sits because it's what you perceive as normal is a mistake all of us can make. So, so David's right. But I, I probably don't understand with any degree of clarity what's kicking out there because I was taught, trained, you know, um, raised to believe a certain way. And that certain way was pretty normal. I mean, it really and truly was, um, you, you wait on the government to paint the line in the middle of the road. So you stay on your side and I'll stay on my side. I mean, that was kind of the expectation of government. They keep the schools safe and clean. You know, they, um, they build a bridge across the river so we could get from one side to the other. I mean, that was kind of my expectation of government. I never expected government to send me a check or pay for my health insurance or to pay for my food. Um, so yes, I mean, David, you're right that there are probably far more people thinking about voting, calculating on, am I going to have to buy my own groceries or somebody going to buy them for me? Do I have to pay my own rent or somebody going to pay that for me? Do I have to go to work or somebody going to pay me not to go to work? Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that they're, I consider that abnormal, weird. Um, but, but I, I would imagine, yeah. in in, in the world today, it's probably a much, a much larger universe <laughs> than I could ever imagine or be willing uh, to accept. Maybe that's why I don't imagine it because I have a hard time accepting it. Take a break. Back in just a few months. 4-3-6-6-1-0-9-3-7. I take it Barry's one of those, who's your first choice? <laughs> who's your second choice? <laughs> who's, your, who's your third choice? You know, th- there's a, there, I don't know if it's an accusation, but there's a, an insinuation would be a better way to explain it. Is DeSantis one of us or is he one of them? And I'm not talking about Republicans. I mean, you know, I, I mean, the Republicans needs a big tent. Got to have a lot of people participating in elections, voting for Republican candidates. I am 1,000% supportive of uh, let's elect the most America conservative candidate. We America first conservative candidate we can in Vermont. I mean, that doesn't fly in. You know, we've always felt that. Why does, you know, California have uh, that Republican House member? They're not really a Republican. Well, I mean, that's, you got to take the district into account. You got to take the state into account. Everybody doesn't see the world like I do, like you do, like, like we do. Um, and that's just the nature of the body politic. It does enforce, uh, some degree of pragmatism and diplomacy, things that we don't care much for. Uh, I like my way. I don't like getting mine and Rev's way. You know, if we're going to do this show, I'd rather do it my way, but I got to be respectful of, of Rev and Josh. I have to, uh, we're in this thing together. And Josh brings things to the table and Rev brings things to the table that have to be seriously considered and, and eventually dismissed. But I mean, we got to, <laughs> right. at, at, at least, least cons- you consider, at least consider Thanks for that, by what the way. you guys bring uh, to the, but you see where I'm headed. I'm trying to be a bit sarcastic mm-hmm. and, and flip it here, but I mean, that's just, I, I get it. I mean, I understand what Barry's saying, you know, DeSantis, we have questions about whether DeSantis is one of us or not. And I can't, I mean, I can't decide that for you. I mean, I can't make, I can't force Dave Baker to believe that DeSantis can be trusted on some of the America first issues. I can't, I mean, Rev's got to decide that on his own. I've never thought that was my responsibility. I mean, some of these ones, I've said this a lot this week, but some of these nationally syndicated hosts 
who have much larger audiences, they believe they have this ordaining power. You know, that they, if, um, if you'll only listen to them, you don't have to decide what to do, but they can decide that for you. And, and I've just never thought, I mean, that's a little arrogant. I mean, I'm, I'm arrogant, but that's a little more arrogant than I'm comfortable uh, being. I want to try to have uh, a conversation where we agree and disagree. We respectfully agree. We respectfully um, disagree. And at the end of the day, we're trying to uh, build a better country. I mean, it's the country that you're going to leave to your children, grandchildren. I'm going to leave to my children and grandchildren. And um, and I'm not running for office, but that's that's what I feel like we play a very, very small part in. You know what's worse than the hosts that tell you what you should believe. It's like the social media engineers who are keeping you from hearing other sides of issues. And we know that happens. I mean, it happens to us a lot. Um, some of the, um, I think some of the best work we've done has not been made available to, um, to others. Now, obviously, they can't stop us from being on the radio because we have licensing and we've, um, we've cleared the hurdle it takes to get, <laughs> you know, um, legitimate and be on the air. But there's no doubt about it that, that people who believe like I do and, and collectively we do, uh, we're swimming upstream. You know, it, it's kind of bizarre to me that CNN professes to be the most trusted name uh, in news and they refuse to report on what I believe will eventually become a major political scandal. And they'll have a little egg on their face, but they don't care. I mean, they, they win an award, you know, for being more committed than most to, you know, the liberal agenda, the progressive initiative in America. And um, that's just who they are. It doesn't keep me up at night. I mean, I don't think it's good for the country. And I think it gives journalism historically a bad name, but it doesn't keep me up at night. I mean, that's not, and I don't have any control over what CNN does or what MSNBC or, or the New York Times. Or what, so why worry about it? I mean, I, I, sure, I'm concerned about it because I think the nation needs a, a legitimately balanced press, but, but we don't have that. And I don't know that we'll ever have it again. Now, forever is a long time. And I'm real hesitant to say <laughs> that'll never happen. And that'll always happen because if, if two words you need salt and pepper for, it's never and always. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.